Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 166th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that marks spec targets, not sleeves. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. How are you this this fine day? Very good, sir. Very good. It's been a busy week in MTG Finance, and it's only about to get busier. I have heard. I have heard you've been eagerly invested, involved with your Japanese boxes, your weeb boxes. <laughs> Fortunately, you're the only person on the planet that's not interested in Japanese War of the Spark boxes, so those have been selling very briskly through partnerships in Asia, and uh, it's pretty incredible that this was all piled up right before Mythic Edition 3, which is then piled up right before Modern Horizons. This eight-week period is going to be pretty crazy. Yeah, and they came out of the gate hard on those alt arts. Um, I know that this... The, what was it at the the pro tour weekend so packs were available in the wild um and the first one that hit we know ed was buying at like 600 or something us for the amaro liliana and tokyo mtg was buying for like six or seven hundred us um <clears throat> i think the, the prices were up there on that guy yeah tokyo mtg on, on certainly put that floated that buy list price out there um possibly partially to set the market <laughs> not 100 percent sure yeah. ed must have been buying lower because he f- sold one to me at 450 which I sadly will never touch because I flipped. Oh, I flipped it an hour later for six hundred plus. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I'm, I've gotten a couple names confused. I remember what Ed was doing. Then it was Heiko over at Tokyo MTG, and someone else was buying. Maybe it was Haru Yuya yeah. and, and Tokyo MTG that were both buying in like the six hundred dollar range. Yeah, that could be true. Because if somebody else, I somebody else pointed out. Um, I think it was on Twitter, but the collector market over there is so strong. Like they collect. Yep. It seemed the, the collector mindset seems to exist in J- Japan more intensely than it does here. Where I, 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 I don't I don't want to chalk it up to like 100 percent. I don't know. It seems like a cultural thing. Oh, yeah. That they just collect a lot of stuff. Well, like there's a huge secondhand culture there, too. Right. Like they're in Tokyo. You can go on almost any given block in a, in a major neighborhood. There's places that are just like cubicles that you rent, like little one square foot cubes stacked up in these rooms, and you can sell anything in those. And because everybody has a really small apartment, you can't collect everything in a series. You're going to like pick and choose your favorite stuff over time, which means there's going to be a lot of turnover, which means there's like collectibles flowing in and out of vendor hands all the time. So the whole like buy list concept for magic cards is extends across the board, whereas like most collectible stores in the US don't really buy collections all that often for all of their collectibles you see a lot more of that in major japanese cities yeah um so pretty wild pretty wild weekend for that stuff um and and the thing is about the like the pre-release promos which is the thing the amano liliana that i bought from ed um you know that will one day be a thousand dollar card would be my guess i mean they only came out last weekend and even when the uh, core set 
uh, prize packs at LGSs later this summer have some of those again. They're not going to be stamped with the the foil. So the penultimate, you know, card of penultimate rarity is probably not pack foil uh, Liliana Dreadhorde General. It's probably the pre-release one. Well, yes, I agree. And I think that's been the case for several cards where the date stamped promo was likely rarer than the pack foil, um, especially once you get six or nine months out and packs keep getting cracked, but those pre-release promos are not increasing in volume. Um, but the overall number of people that prefer those tends to be lower. Although I will say that uh, date stamped promos have certainly gotten more value relative to pack foils in the last two years or so than they were before. It used to be that the pack foil, the promo foils were considerably lower price than the pack ones. Um, but I think, you know, that was more so because the promo foils, it was only one promo. So everyone got the same one, which meant there were a zillion of them. Now with the way they handle it, you're only getting, you know, you're getting it across the board. So distributes it considerably. What if I, but wait, before you, before you go on, our show is sponsored by Produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Um, okay. Yeah, so I was going to point out a couple things. First of all, you're right, absolutely right to point out that the, you know, which, whether there was a singular pre-release card that was overproduced or a mixture of cards certainly has mattered over time. Uh, two major points. Card Kingdom often offers more for pre-release versions than they do for pack foils these days, um, often 20% or so, um, especially for key cards. Um, second point specific to War of the Spark, I noticed, I think that there were, it was possible to get an uncommon Planeswalker in your pre-release promo slot, because I think I saw some of those. So I think they, the, with War of the Spark, there was 36 possible options and they weren't all the same rarity. Um, I believe that. I mean, for this particular set, rather than do all of the rares and mythics, they might have done all the Planeswalkers. Which means that any given one is especially rare. Pack. It also means that pack uh, or promo foil Liliana Dreadhorde General is more rare than it would have been otherwise in in a normal circumstance where there wasn't 36 options. And the one in Japan where it has a 50-50 chance of being the alt art is ex- even that much more rare. And in comparison to the pack foils, ex- even that much more rare because we know that the Jap- in this particular case, Wizards is going to be producing a lot more Japanese boxes than they normally would because of the demand to get the alt arts overseas. So we know that pack foils will, uh, for instance, be somewhat more uh, available in North America by midsummer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in any case, it's 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 wild the way all this has gone. Um, I think. I think the takeaway here in our mid-introduction partial segment is that if you want any of this stuff, you're probably supposed to pull the trigger like now because it's just, yeah, 
I think I guess I'm I'm inclined. To, if you want the Japanese promos, I think you're supposed to f- pull the trigger now. The rest of it, you can probably wait. Yeah, the Japanese promos, you pull the trigger. The some of the key foils that are big in EDH that won't be a big deal in constructed formats that will be value undervalued in Japan. I would keep an eye out for those and try to snap them up. Some one of the problems is that some of the artists that you know people will be blasé about here. Um, or some of the um, images that you and I had already agreed we kind of thought were mediocre are actually associated with prominent artists or artists that are prominent yeah. in other major hobbies in Japan. So they will still be sought after and will not necessarily get cheap. Um, in fact, they might just start climbing. The um, in terms <laughs> There's of no accounting for taste when it comes to anime. There's a lot of sub niches in the genre, that's for sure. The um, <laughs> as far as Japanese War of the Spark booster boxes go. Um, they've been selling hot and heavy on eBay and I've sold some too with partners in the 200 to $300 range. I think that if you don't, if you wait, there's a chance they might not get a lot cheaper, but they will probably get significantly cheaper so that if you're very patient and wait till we are out into the modern horizons hype cycle, you might get a chance at much closer to normal pricing. If I had to guess, I would say by midsummer, you'll be able to get Japanese boxes in the like 140 to 160 range at least. Um, but how quickly those are snapped up once they hit North America is anybody's guess. Like, I don't know if they're just going to be lying around on shelves come September or an allotment's going to show up, but that's the final allotment. It's going to seem common for about four weeks, and then you'll just blink one day and realize there's none left on eBay, and they're back to 300 again. Yeah, that's that's kind of a, a big question too, right? Those sort of invisible forces that we don't have a lot of visibility into well, cause like most one, of the time. One of the things like your average Facebook commenter or Reddit commenter on this topic has been totally wrong about is that uh, because... English War of the Spark is generally considered to be quote-unquote print-to-demand, which means for as long as LGSs need to get their hands on product to support the standard infrastructure, they will be able to get, like, Wizards will keep going back to the printing press. Now, they don't actually do that very often because their predicted, like, their analytics in terms of what they're going to need to print is probably fairly accurate. So it's probably relatively in infrequently that they even consider doing that i think with the japanese boxes they took a guess they probably underestimated and so they probably will go back to the press maybe once but it won't be more than that there's just too much other too much else coming down the track like we've already got modern horizons we've got the command new commander decks in late summer we've got the core set and then we're on to whatever block we don't even know about yet for the fall um and this is the first time in a while we didn't know what we were getting in the fall right like we're late spring and we still don't know the name of the fall set Nobody leaked it? Uh, it's us- usually right around now. I think they tend to do an announcement prior to the... I feel like we've gotten the name of the fall set ahead of the third set yeah. frequently. Like at a con, right? Like we, you tend to get it at a con- at one of the conventions. Um, so I, I have no idea when they're doing that release, so that yeah. announcement now because we're by the time we get through the other end of War of the Spark hype in a couple in a few weeks, we're already almost into preview season for Modern Horizons. Yeah, they I, they must be tinkering with their their timeline here of releases. But I mean, I guess it's not too surprising. You've got 
War of the Spark, which they're obviously trying to drum up a ton of excitement for, right into Modern Horizons, which they're going to try and drum up a lot of excitement for. So if you were to throw in information about the fall set, maybe they're worried that it kind of breaks it, right? Like, oh, we're going back to Theros, you know, here's a shot of Elspeth coming out of the tomb or whatever. Um, maybe they're going to pull back on that a little. People will pull back a little bit. I don't think that that's likely the case, but that could be some of the rationale behind it. It's going to be a busy season. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's jump. Been a busy season. Let's jump into our top movers. See if we can play. Wait, we didn't tell people what our segments were, James. Oh, we have guys. It's a whole new story this week. We have four segments, totally different than before. The first one is top movers. The second one is some no some cards we, do, we think are we don't move. even have four segments. We have three. We have three. <laughs> it's a hybrid. The third one is like a three-four <laughs> split where we're talking about the metagame we can review and going over Pro Tour London all kind of at the same time. There's also been an insanely spicy set of 5-0 lists on Magic Online this week that we're going to have to go over because it's probably the best set of lists I've seen in quite some time. I, I will tell you that uh, I, I have been glancing at modern lists because they're I always like to look at them. They're fun to see what's going on. I haven't cared quite as much lately as I normally do simply because I know Modern Horizons on is right there and it's going to screw everything up but there was some nifty stuff in there yeah. um but yeah let's get let's kick the list off uh first card of the week bellfire liege um uh, wait well you added this on here uh a plane chase non-foils 15 to 23 um so about a 50 percent gain that's definitely because of feather um yeah and that's the rarest version of so we'll tend to exhibit a stronger buy list um that's one of the th- something to keep in mind when you're dealing with specs is that if if a card was printed in a couple of different places and one of them was a supplemental product, buy lists will just get less of them in stock. And for reasons I don't fully understand, they, they I guess because they respond to selling, because they're going to get less in, they're going to sell out more easily. So they tend to raise their number higher, even though it's basically the same card. Um, but anyway, the Balefire Liege from Plane Chase in particular is probably going to get you better on buy lists than the other ones. Yeah, if you had the choice, I would take that one. Although I would not expect it to be particularly meaningful. Just so people are aware. Maybe, maybe. Well, I mean, um, we've seen Feather posting <laughs> results for a solid month now. So, and and no, 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 I mean, like, if you have the choice between Bellfire Leeches, yeah, well, take, you probably get like a, same you probably get a couple extra bucks. You probably get a couple extra bucks for the for the plane chase version. That's what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, yeah. I would. I'm mostly inclined to agree with that, but I would just say don't, don't bet too hard on that, because the average player who's buying, uh, what call it, this card for feather is not going to spend likely, a, you know, a twelve dollar premium for a different set symbol because that's the only difference. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm only talking about the fact that you're going into buy list. So for instance, uh, right now, Card Kingdom, for instance, is offering exactly the same. You get eleven, fourteen, thirty, whether it's even tied or plain chase. So my, mm. my theory doesn't hold up at all, at least in that particular case. <laughs> but not yet. All right. So moving along, Gemstone Caverns from Time Spiral uh, foils from 120 to 185. There's no place for this to get reprinted anytime soon. <clears throat> Nothing. Um, and if they reprint Modern Horizons again in the fall, like they did with Eternal Masters, and they don't give us a different supplemental premium product, which I'd say odds are 50-50 on that. Um they're getting pretty greedy this year, so it wouldn't surprise me to see like Ultimasters 2 or something in the fall, but we'll see. Um, bottom line is Gemstone Caverns. If the London Mulligan rule sticks with modern, 
And the feedback we've gotten so far, we'll dive into more detail in segment three, but the feedback has been that it probably will. Um, then I don't expect these to, you know, retrace very much because there aren't going to be a lot of people that want to shell out $600 for foil playsets, but there'll be enough given how much supply there is in the market, which is none. Mm-hmm. This is a... Uh... This is going to be a tricky card because normally you would have your summer set, uh, you know, Battle Bond or um, all, um, Modern Masters or EMA, that type of set. You know, this is the type of card that you can squeeze in there without too much difficulty. But it's Modern Horizons this year. We know that it can't be there. So it just it seems like well, where the hell are you going to put this card? So. But, you know, the foils already jumped. The non-foil is like 50 or 60 bucks. And frankly, I could see that non-foil hitting 100. Uh, What's it at now? I'm not saying it will, but I I think it's like 60, uh, 40. It is 40 right now. Frankly, that could be, that might be a pick. $40 in gemstone caverns could be 40 and how many copies sitting there? Uh, There's one foil at $200. Um, There are nine near mint copies Oh, wait, sorry. No, nine vendors for 12, 13, 14, 15 total copies. One's foil, two are Russian, one's Italian. So 11 near mint English copies, and they're pretty much all at $50. Let's call that an, that's called that an unofficial pick this week. You're absolutely right. It's, I don't know about 100, but it's definitely going to go 40 to 60 in a hurry here. Yeah, you're going to pay, fi- you're, well, you're going to pay 50. You're getting in at $50. If you can find them at 40, that's a slam dunk, most likely. And even at 50, like, you can probably sell them at 75, I would say. Yeah. Because there's just no copies left. And people have been buying that for a while. Like, uh, Gemstone, so I w- Gemstone Caverns have been over 20 for like two years. And I had like four or five listed um, just two weeks ago, maybe a week ago, and they all got bought. So people are buying these things. And the only the only real risk here is that they don't keep the mulligan for modern. That hurts. Yeah, I mean that's definitely you're not happy about that, but I I think that that's still good in spite of that. Hmm. You, you like even still, even still, you're probably safe. I mean, just because where the hell are they putting it? Of course, they could decide that they're gonna. Wh- wh- when did they announce UMA last year? Like they announced it. Oh, in like August or something, didn't they? No, no, no. It was a surprise. Right, it was late. That's what I'm saying. It was really late. No, it, so it was like could, October, late, late October or something. Later, okay, that late. So we could find out in the fall, like right after the new set comes out, new standard starts. Oh, by the way, there's going to be another premium product in uh, in 12 days, in in a month or whatever. <laughs> right, right, right after, um, right after Mythic, Mythic Edition Four, they're revisiting, which will be some other new nonsense. There's, there's no way they're giving up on these. I would expect Mythic Edition style things to happen in every standard set now. It's just too much money. It's bonus money for no reason. Yeah. Um, and frankly, that almost seems like something that we should, you should probably be on the lookout for them doing because uh, you're now going to have so much more pressure on all these existing modern staples that didn't get reprinted. They might want to fire off another modern reprint set fairly soon in order to deliver those reprints to players so like mythic edition one two three added a cool nine million dollars minimum to the bottom line at watsy and that's and that's direct there's no wholesale in no middleman there there's no lgs there's no wholesaler two levels of profit were raked in by the house 
Yeah. How much do they pay for those art? What do they pay for art pieces? Like ten grand? Like what's twelve? What we're grand yeah. Maybe? What we're asking is what's the production cost for the exterior packaging, the twenty four pieces of art, and the internal like product design and whatever. Significantly less than nine million dollars. Yeah, most and, likely. And the print run was guess... probably less than hmm. what do they print? Eighteen thousand sets of something. Probably paid. Like tens of What's tens that? of dollars. I'm just like calculating what their like oh, printing press the... costs were in my head based on other projects I've yeah. worked on. The like tens of dollars per set. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and even, definitely in that ballpark, right? And even that's generous. Like, there's there's a there's some custom stuff there, but it's still a fairly large total order. And I bet you they ran it all at once. How many are in our? How many planeswalkers are there in Mythic Edition three? Eight in each. So there's twenty four total. In a, in eight. in one two three. So they did uh, twenty four total. If we say it's fifteen thousand dollars per piece of art, they spent three hundred and sixty thousand dollars on art. Basically nothing. Like for all, three. I think production budget total time spent internally on the the way accounting would handle it is probably less than two million dollars. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, so they spent, it's about probably like eight bucks in art roughly per box <laughs> would be, my, would be, is a, it's a rough estimate, right? Sure. Like if you think that the artists are getting 30 grand, make it $16, but the printing press costs are going to be real low. I bet that art is. I'm, and I honestly, I'm not, a, I the, don't even know if their number is close to that. I'd want to check with like Vorthos Mike or somebody to get some info on what artists get. I, I, I have rough information okay so you think that's about that, what it is that, that's in the, yeah i mean I, i'm comfortable that that's within double the range mm-hmm. um i mean maybe for a premium product like their their top tier artists they might pay a little bit more but uh i mean there's a reason these guys aren't doing one a year <laughs> right they're doing a bunch because they got to pay their bills yeah uh, they don't. They don't do one of these and then do pet projects and really artsy stuff the rest of the year. No, they, um, uh, so they're not getting seventy grand a piece. In some cases, it depends on how much, um, like exposure. Like I, something that's going to be printed eighteen thousand only released in select markets is usually handled differently than global exposure. Like if you're doing the box art, like Lily on a Dreadhorde General, it's going to be used on all the marketing materials worldwide. That contract is usually different. Um, but right. I don't. I don't know how they're negotiating that that's definitely something maybe we should have Vorthos might might on at some point to uh comment well that's tough because who wants to come on and talk about it he's also got me blocked on twitter so that might be a problem <laughs> i i'm not surprisingly but <laughs> maybe we should pick another contact in the art world <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'll maybe we'll be best friends after we talk to him we'll see um, yeah, we'll see. All right, so next on the list, Tamio Collector of Tales. I flagged this one, even though it was only 15, 57% gainer, because I think that this was a Planeswalker that a lot of people, pros included, discounted right out of the gates. It didn't look like it did much. And as testing has gone on for Standard, a lot of pros are coming around. In fact, Daniel Fournier, who was on last week for our set review, kind of poo-pooed the card as I was advancing it. I was like, eh, I don't know. I saw Ali and Trazi running it in a chromatic Planeswalker build. Maybe it's a thing. And this this afternoon, Fournier got back to me and said, you know what? It's totally a thing. <laughs> like, not in Chromatic Planeswalkers, but in uh, uh, Blue-Green Wilderness Regulation Nexus of Fate decks. 
Um, because what Tamio does is she goes and digs for uh, important cards. Um, so if you have a bunch of four ofs, she helps you find the, the necessary ones to like complete the puzzle, like complete the steps your deck is trying to, you know, turn by turn get to your finish line. And when you're trying, you when you really want to find your nexus of fate or you really want to find your wilderness reclamation, Tamio helps with that. And she has a bunch of incidental benefit because people can't make you sacrifice things and they can't make you discard. So um, the his thought erasure, the blue black spell that. Uh, lets you pick a card out of somebody's hand and scries one or whatever. That just doesn't work when Tamio's in play. Um, so it looks like it's going to post up as a four of uh, in lists that have a shot at top eight. And um, I don't think you're supposed to be buying them at $3 or whatever, looking to get to 350 or four, because I mean, this is a rare and extremely heavily open set. But if you're already filling out carts over in Europe, I snagged a hundred copies at like 60 cents. Um, Europe has definitely been the correct hunting grounds for War of the Spark specs. Um, and I'm doing a little... What's the... I'm doing a little... What's the one that you bought, like, last week? You bought, like, 40 or 50 copies. I've actually bought... I'm, like, 8 or 10 specs deep. And I never do this. I, I do not buy standard specs generally. But I decided to throw $1,000 at it because I'm curious. I want to see if Europe is too... If the biggest vendors in Europe price things too cheaply out of the gate. Um and lag behind the the like testing trends and see if there's a buy list play within like eight weeks so i'm not waiting for tamio to go three to seven dollars or something like i don't think that's what's going to happen i think it's going to settle in the like two to four dollar range but it's possible that she sees enough play or camera hype or something that buy lists get up to like a dollar fifty or a dollar eighty five or two dollars or something and then i'm like two or two or three times on that spec um so i picked up a whole bunch of different like uncommon and rare planeswalkers um a johnny Greathearted, who's going to be a major uh, a really solid attracts a card because he adds loyalty counters and plus one plus one counters to creatures um so he fits in like every attracts deck ever um and showed up in a 5-0 modern list that we'll get to in a little while um ashiok uh dream render and narset um, both uncommons look like they were totally underestimated. Ashiok does all sorts of crazy stuff in a variety of formats, and Narset looks like she might be playable in both standard and modern. Um, so one of the things I think is really interesting about War of the Spark is the Mythics are not... The Mythics is like a group of cards that can, some of which can get there in standard, and some of which might at some point get there in modern, and some like finale of devastation that certainly be useful in edh but like probably your entry point is further down the road but when i'm looking at these boxes like three or four years out i see a really deep bench for rares and uncommons because there are 36 planeswalkers and there are and going through the like the uncommons list in this set there are a lot of cards that are going to end up being three four dollars like three, oh, three yeah, four years out sure. that you're going to be able to yeah, like yeah. this is not a set to throw at your chat ja- your draft chaff like <laughs> because there there's there might be 20 uncommons that'll be worth more than a dollar down the road yeah i'm i'm on board with that and this is it's a weird set uh normally you wouldn't expect them to behave like that but with all of those planeswalkers and the thing is is plenty of them can be genuinely bad today like just there's no home for them. Nobody wants them. They're just not good. That can totally be true. And it can also be true 
that in two years, they're $7 on commons because they printed some card that broke it or, uh, you know, some new strategy shows up that makes use of it. Uh, all of that's very viable. Um, so it could be bad today, but great tomorrow. So it's worth keeping all this stuff. Yeah. So here, here's a, here's a cart that I threw together. Um, and one of the things you look, you're looking to leverage here on MCM is combined shipping on pre-orders. So the way it works on MCM is if you place an order and pay for it right away and then do another one three hours later, it's a hassle to try to combine those out, those orders. And the vendors may push back on you trying to combine the shipping because it's not as easy for them as it is on eBay. So what you want to do is not pay. <laughs> you want to spend a couple days building up your your uh uh, your invoice with them by just continuously placing orders. And then you're going to get automatically get combined shipping because what MCM does do or what card market does do is automatically combine orders from the same vendor that you haven't paid for yet. Um, it lets you order them without paying for them. Yeah. I don't remember doing that. That's because you're, you're pre-stocking your account. So you're paying as you go. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I never tried that would be why. Yeah. So it's one of the, like, I, I lose 10% by paying by PayPal, but gain the time advantage of not having to wait for my latest wire transfer to make it across. Um, right. Uh, and it also lets me do tricky things like this. Um, so this card in particular was like Gideon Black Blades at like $15 or less. Liliana Dreadhorde Generals under $15. I think both those cards have a strong shot at hitting 25 to 30 in the near future. Um, Chandra Fire Artisans under like 75 cents. Dreadhorde Arcanist at around $3. 32 Sarkin the Masterless at uh, 65 cents. 40 Nisa Who Shakes the World at about a dollar. And then 100 Tamyo in that order at about 60 cents. Um, I think the Chandra is probably the weakest link there. Um, but what I would imagine will happen here is that one or two of these will hit on a buy list basis in the next 12 weeks or so and pay for the rest. The others will go into a mm-hmm. box of shame and then will slowly climb over time. So like, for instance, if Nisa doesn't really get there in standard in this season, she gets another shot in the fall and if she misses there and ends up rotating without getting a, a real shake. It's still just a good EDH card. And like what's Nisa who shakes the world going to be worth in three years. Yeah. If the play here is, you know, I, I'm going to spec on these planes on these cards uh, with the assumption that one or two will get enough on buy list to pay for the other ones. And then the worst case scenario is that I break just about even. But now I have, uh, you know, 40 copies of each of these cards um, just sitting there and they're not valuable today, but they will be down the road, most likely. Um, and you, you know, you had those, now you have them and you didn't have them before and it didn't technically didn't really cost you anything. So that seems like a pretty safe way to go. And then, you know, one day we're doing the cast and I go, did you realize this card is like six bucks now? And you dump them all on the buy list and you're, you're better off for it. So Narset Parter avails one blue, blue, each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn. And honestly, if it was just an enchantment then said that that's probably playable in EDH, right? Uh, Yeah. Depending, it depends on how uh, spiteful you are. Well, like, Ristic Study and Smothering Tithe are considered absolute tier one top staples, right? So, yes. and this shuts down both. Uh, yeah, but I mean, hate cards in EDH are always worse than doing things. Actually, what, what am I talking about? It doesn't shut down Smothering Tithe. It shuts down Ristic Study, but Smothering Tithe gives you yeah. treasure tokens, not cards. Um, but... 
Close enough. Card drawing is extremely prevalent in the format. Like, uh, I, I don't disagree with that. I think if you start looking at EDH cards for their hate value, you're on a, a bad path. I, I'm not sure. Because people build EDH decks for fun, like to do cool things. They don't build them typically to shut down their opponents. Now, it might be useful in like 1v1 EDH, like the French Highland or whatever, but I'm not familiar enough with that format or the demand profile it generates to speak to see, it. See, I see I see Narset as being somewhat similar to something like a Campbell console allocation. Every little like like time you lean into his ability and and create the life exchange, it's not enough for you to waste your point removal on him. But, and because of that, he keeps grinding. And I think that Narset is, is kind of similar. Like, j- not being able to draw extra cards isn't necessary, n- necessarily going to set up a situation where they try to get rid of her unless they're trying to go off hard or something. But then her minus two is look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a non-creature, non-land card. So you basically get to impulse, right? Um, and you're going to get two uses out of her if, if she's left... Uh, unmolested and if she's played into a doubling season under Atraxa then she's at 10 loyalty and she's really going to get go to town drawing you creating card advantage so at 45 cents <laughs> if it sees any play anywhere it's worth more than that 45 cents is real cheap I will give you that and the art on that card is in my top 5 for the whole set English art really yep super nice okay. art you don't like that one? I still, still. Uh, I don't remember what it looks like. I still am not sold on your EDH hate cards strategy, but at forty-five cents, I don't have to be. I think that's still fine. I, I mean, I don't look at it as a hate card. I look at it as a a value exchange card. Like if if the table would normally draw twenty, thirty extra cards in the course of the game, and Narset is partic- is present for twenty percent of that, then she presents prevents for the cost of one card, you prevent the table from drawing five or six. And you get one or two extra yourself. I, I want to argue about this, but this isn't what people listen to our cast for. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, well, I mean, it's it's a it's about them having the ability to test my logic for why I'm buying this spec and decide whether they have any interest in buying this spec, right? I, I'm going to reiterate here that I have no problems with Chandra at 45 cents. Um, Narset. That seems like a good Narset. Sorry, it seems like a good purchase. Regardless, I did, on the topic of, the, mm-hmm. I also did the same thing with Enter the God Eternals, Kiora Behemoth Beckoner, um, and as we're going to see shortly, roughly half of these cards have already five owed modern leagues. Yeah. Uh okay. So all that sounds good. On the EDH component specifically, most people don't build decks trying to beat their opponent's strategies they build decks trying to maximize their own not saying nobody does it but that's the fun way to play edh which means that trying to put cards in whose sole purpose is to spite your opponents generally isn't as popular as something you could be playing that's just cool for you partially because you have no idea who you're going to run into some decks will crush you and draw one card to turn the entire game uh, other cards will kill you on turn four and never touch their graveyard so specific hate cards can be very lackluster depending on who you're playing against. Kind of sideboards for EDH are a little frowned upon. That's just kind of like crummy gamesmanship. Like, you know, we're all here to have fun, not beat each other. Cabal is a tax. So like he, he can kill your opponents or he puts them in positions where they can't cast spells anymore. 
or gives you get, puts a lot of tension in the in place where they either can play spells, but it puts them in makes it easier to die to attacks. Um, and he also gains you life, which is a resource. So like you can do things with that, and it kind of gives you a buffer. Turning off everyone else's draws is doesn't help you directly. It just gives you virtual card advantage by narrowing the gap between you and your opponents in terms of of raw card advantage. But it doesn't feel good for the guy who casts it. It only feels bad for everyone else. And I think that that's like part of the what up? What up? Is it impulse twice if she's left alone? So you're still getting card uh, okay. So. So I am speaking strictly to the no one else can draw extra cards clause. The rest of the card is still fine, right? Like you can still, I'm not saying you won't play her in EDH. I'm just saying like that first line of text is like not the reason that you necessarily a reason to go to her. And so you see that as different than say Consecrated Sphinx because that still lets opponents draw. You just draw twice as much. Yes. You, they, your opponent, it doesn't stop your opponents. You just get more than they do. Sure. Whereas this is no one gets anything, sure. so- which is... Played by other people, right? People do enjoy that. So do you apply the same logic to Ashiok Dream Render? Spells and abilities your opponent's uh, control can't cause their controller to search their library. <laughs> yeah, Nar- Nar- I do. Narset plus Ashiok on the table you think is not going to happen in EDH? <sighs> no, I mean, people will do it because some people play EDH to be jerks, right? Like, that's what they get out of it. Um, so 100% people will do it. I think will the greater EDH culture at large lean into these cards the way they lean in the Smothering Tithe and Rissic Study? No. Uh, uh, I, Ashiok is really good at daggering the snot out of the people at your table. But now Ashiok is a little bit different because people – so when you build an EDH deck, you sit down and you're like, okay, I have to have what I should have is – answers to creatures. I have to have have some answers to creatures. I have to have some answers to enchantment, some answers to artifacts, and I have to have some answers to graveyard, right? You, 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 if you build your deck without answers to graveyards at all, you will get demolished by it. So it's a good idea to find those where you can. And Ashiat could fill that slot depending on what else he does. On the Narset side, like you typically don't build your deck thinking I have to stop people from drawing cards. You just rather go after the card that draws them the extras rather than the effect of drawing the cards. Whereas with the graveyard stuff, if somebody shows up with Boldrotha, every card in their deck is playing to the graveyard. So going after the specific cards interact with the graveyard isn't going to work. That's 99 cards. You go after the graveyard itself. You go after that resource. And one of the funny... Okay, so I, I agree with all that. That's... Uh, tight analysis. The Ashiok, I think, in that case, based on that uh, logic, um, I like a little more than Narset because I didn't realize up until recently that the two parts of his minus one ability can have basically essentially have separate targets. So target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard, then exile each opponent's graveyard. So he goes into your Maldrotha deck because you want stuff in your graveyard. So you minus one, put four cards that you get to then recast every turn, adds to your like bonus library effectively, but your opponents keep losing their graveyard every time you do it. So you're messing with them from two different dimensions. They don't get a graveyard, they can't search their libraries, and you keep filling up your graveyard for abusive reasons. Yeah, he's pretty annoying. And again, if this was just an enchantment that said players can't search their libraries... Um, I don't think it'd get really get played. But you tack on that minus one ability. Well, you're really playing him for that, and the static ability just is just along for the ride for the most part. You're like, oh, I wanted to play this minus one anyways because it fills my graveyard and gets rid of my opponent's crap. 
and I get this bonus text on top of it, well, now we're in business. So th- so he's definitely a case of, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts type of D- deal. Does he make it into your Sidisi deck? Mm, no, but I don't build my Sidisi deck for efficiency. I build it for, I want to just spit zombie tokens out. Um, because it's actually really hard to play cards that build zombie tokens because they keep getting bumped out by everything else. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so moving right along, we've... Uh done our usual thing spent half an hour getting into the weeds we've only gone through balefire fire liege and gemstone caverns uh i guess we touched on tamio um and uh, and yeah. ashiok okay we're not doing that bad we got four cards under our belts four cards so, all right four cards in how many minutes in a lot. <laughs> fastest finance here we go 45 yeah stolen strategy from battle bond uh non-foils from two dollars to 350 this is just a solid battle bond edh card climbing as the sealed price of the of the set has continued to climb ev of the set has continued to climb uh once it uh went out of print um and we'll continue to see the top five or ten cards from that set appreciate until they see a reprint which is probably a ways off um Next on the list, in Garrick's Wake, uh, foils from Magic 2015. This was your pick a short time ago. Gone from $2 to $4 for about a 79% gain. You're probably not buy listing out uh, at that level, and you're going to be selling these onesie twosie. So you might have a little bit of the way, ways to go there, and I don't think you're in a huge rush since people don't even really have their hands on War of the Spark product yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would agree. I, I am... I'm excited about those stolen strategies because I bought a bunch of copies uh, a couple months ago, a bunch of Japanese foils. So buy more stolen strategies, you guys. <laughs> uh, okay, Isochron Scepter, Automirian, oh, no, no, Foils. No, no. Dreadhorde Invasion. Oh, isn't that what you just... No, I did in Garrick's Wake. Dreadhorde Invasion out of War of the Spark. Non-foils going from oh. 250 to 5 um, people thought this was a bad bitter blossom. I think Jason might have coined the term shitter blossom or something the other day. Um, of course he but did. The re- yeah, it sounds like a Jason thing. Uh, but the reality is that it's standing up pretty good in testing. Like I've seen mid-range decks running it um, as well as aggro decks, and I'm not sure how the meta is going to form around it and whether it will have staying power or just be you know heavily represented in the in the testing portion. Um, for this new standard, but it's better than people thought. Um, and it's going to have, it's having at least a bit of a moment. Um, if I had any, would I be selling if I got in on them early? I don't know what pre-order pricing looked like on that card, but I suspect there, there may be an exit in the near future. That definitely people came out of the gate on this card, uh, because I remember reading it and reading it like four times and being like, why do people like this card? Like, this isn't as good as people want it to be. Because um, I know, like, Kaibu and those guys were talking about it. And they all seemed relatively up on it. Which made me kind of question my own card evaluation skills. Because I'm like, this isn't Bitter Blossom. Because it just keeps making one guy bigger. Which is way worse than making a bunch of small guys. Well, it's more that it... So, I don't it's know. It's more that it, it... If you're playing the aggro version where you have a bunch of a mass effects. Then it's more that it... Anytime they stumble on point or, or sweeper, point removal or sweepers, then they, they just start falling behind. And if it gets up over six, it starts creating massive life swings because of the lifelink. Um, and if they, in the decks that are running it kind of like a more mid-range strategy, it, it's the kind of, it creates this incremental advantage that makes up for a couple of bad draws. Like you're still presenting a threat or putting a blocker on the board. Um, 
incidentally without any further resource allocation while you're trying to find your late game cards. So I've seen it I've seen it do work, like a lot of work. Um, I don't know how good it's going to end up being three or six months out or whether it's like where what its position looks like in the fall. Um, but I'm not surprised to see it seeing, you know, a brief flare up, which is about to get crushed, by the way, because if there's anything you're looking to spec on this set and you're not buying it in Europe, you should not be doing it today. Um, wait until <laughs> everybody and everybody starts selling this weekend and has to undercut each other and start looking for some, you know, on key pieces. Look for late night eBay deals. Look for uh, playset bins. Look for people like undercutting each other by ten or twenty percent on TCG Player, and then you can start start figuring out what you need to play for standard. MTG Finance after dark. Mm-hmm um yeah i i i don't really care for it all that much so i i wouldn't be i'm not on board here um following that now i get to talk about icecron scepter out of mirrodin foils 15 to 31 well it's a popular in edh about twelve thousand decks uh popular in cubes too it's really good in cubes uh, where it's a little more competitive uh it pops in the modern every now and then people forget that abrupt decay and uh assassin's trophy exists and they try and play it and they get smashed uh, but that doesn't keep it from being popular. Uh, I would sell any Mirrodin foils that I had, but I'm assuming nobody listening to this has a stock of Isochron Scepter Mirrodin foils. So I, I don't even think there's a lot to say here. Just sell them if you got them. Gale Rider Slivers foils out of M14. Uh, almost 10 bucks, up to 25 So a pretty big jump there. Um, I know that later on when we talk about those MTGO 5.0 lists, there's actually a sliver list at the top of the page. Gale Rider sliver is like basically the most important sliver in modern slivers. A one mana creature that gives your team flying. So an important evasion. It's extremely important. Comes down really quickly um, and means that all of your beats are getting through pretty readily. Uh, so... But this price spike isn't based on that deck. Now, there might have been some other uh, excitement with slivers in modern results other than, you know, those lists that came out today, I think it was. Um, so that could be part of it. We also know that there's some tribal excitement for Modern Horizons right now. People are kind of thinking that might be a thing that goes on. So maybe they're pulling the gun on, trigger on that Slivers too. makes perfect sense to show up in Horizons. There's... It's one of the tribes that has a bunch of out-of-print cards that could be a thing they would that people would think would be fun to play in modern could easily be there. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, Shepherd of rot from plane chase, non foils, $2 to $6. No reprint in a decade on this card. It was in, printed in onslaught printed in plane chase. And that is it. Now this is a card. I like, I like uh, Shepherd of rot tap that boy. Everyone's going down. It's a nice, nice quick game. It's it's a nice aggro finisher. I'm stalled out. You can block. Your mid game has been set up. um, But I've still got a few zombies on board. They're kind of useless, but I'm just going to tap this dude and finish things off. Yeah. And finish things off, it does. Yeah. Um, Fury of the Horde uh out of the dual decks both foils and non-foils because this was also in uh crud which one was fury of the horde take a you can look that up for me but uh it was cold snap the non-foils dollar 50 to about 675 seven bucks 
uh, this is part of the modern Narset combo. Um, it allows you to attack with your Narset. You know, once you set up the opening for your Narset, you can get in more than once. Yeah, so um, and keep hitting those untap triggers. all creatures that attack this turn. After this main phase, there is an additional combat phase followed by additional main phase. And the key here is you can discard two red cards to play this instead of, instead of playing seven. So um, you get all these cards in your hand, discard extra copies of Narset and whatever, um, and go off. I'm still waiting for uh, the day Soul Spike breaks out in Modern. <laughs> I've tried to make that we'll work in many a casual deck back in the day. It really feels like it belongs in a deck with Gristlebrand, but it still has not quite cracked. It's not gotten there quite yet one of these days. Uh, sometimes you don't like foils. You don't like Mirrodin block foils, but you like Torment foils, I bet. Uh, I definitely don't like Mirrodin foils, but I love me some Torment foils. Yeah, they're really nice. And Accelerate is not an important card, but it's important in Feather because you need all the cantrip effects you can get to keep targeting Feather with over and over and over again. And uh, it looks like Feather might be a real standard deck. Um, so Foils may actually take off here pretty quick. If you, We usually say don't spec on standard Foils, but one of the things I've noticed is that if a card is good in Modern or EDH plus standard, um, and people think they're going to get use out of it maybe down the road, um, or it's just like a really fun deck. Some pe- and the deck is relatively cheap, as the feather deck looks like it will be in standard. Some people might foil it out. Not very many, very small percentage, but combination of multi-format play can drive prices. So, oh yeah, um, twenty dollars for a foil accelerate in theory, a almost four hundred percent gain from its current or its previous four dollar price point. Um, I think you're going to have trouble if you manage to sell a $20 foil accelerate or any of the other foil cantrips from feather do let us know um especially if you're in the discord we have a sales reporting thread where all of the pro traders report how their sales are going and what's been moving um, which i find very useful and others do as well one of the many reasons to check that whole thing out well i uh i think that standard and edh crossover is real good uh that's exactly where you want to be um, in terms of, you know, cards gaining in value. Um, I, I, my guess would be you can you can probably get, you know, if these were four bucks before, you can probably get $9 for them would be my guess. Um, someone will pay that many dollars for this foil, but... I want to know what Feather, Feather Redeem is going for in Europe. So you can still get Feather for a buck fifty. Is this a $5 standard card if Feather posts up as a solid deck? Uh, I mean, it's possible, sure. I mean, Smothering Tithe took off real hard. It's like a $15 standard card. It's not in, or it's a $15 card in standard, but isn't played in standard, or $9 or whatever. So, like, can Feather, as a semi-popular Flavor of the Week commander, hit four bucks if it's also getting played in, like, a tier two and a half standard deck? Yeah, probably. Feather's different. I mean, it's dangerous for us to compare Feather to Smothering Tide. Smothering Tide is going into every white deck ever. So every player that has 10 decks, if they have three white ones, they bought three copies of Smothering Tide. Feather, the thing about commanders, and can never harp on this too much, is that they're usually the worst target in their deck. Um, there have been exceptions, things like Atrax and Brea that we picked recently, but that's because they're top 10 commanders of all time. I don't actually think Feather is going to join those ranks. I think she's going to be a top 25. Like She'll be top five this year. But three to six months from now, people will be building other decks. So yeah, yeah, for sure. The non-foil feather in North America currently at five dollars already. It, in, in Europe, they're a dollar. 
Let there me just go. add a few. To, let just let me add a few things to my cart here. I mean, if the question was, if we had, if if we had assumed Feather was one dollar in the U.S., and the question was, can Feather hit four dollars in the U.S. non-foil English? I would have said, yeah. Like, if she gets played as a standard deck that people like, like you don't, you're only buying one for each person is only buying one for EDH, and that's fine, but. If anyone plays in standard, they're buying four, and neither of those are good enough on their own. But a bunch of EDH players buying one, and a couple of standard players buying four is enough to really start to push that up a little bit. Of course, the layout of this set is weird too, right? Like the with all the planeswalkers. The, so. I, I haven't looked at the number yet, or over the last couple of days, but the EV of the set has to be through the roof right now. Like I, I don't think Saf has published his article yet, but I expect it to be fairly amusing. Uh, yeah, today I would have to imagine, right? Yeah. Like probably real good. Just a zillion $4 cards or whatever. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get on the segment two here, our actual picks. Uh, kick us off. What do you got? This one's simple. Chromatic Lantern foils. I think DJ is the person I just noticed talking about this card most recently on maybe two episodes back of BSB or something. Um, and it's like, common wisdom this is a mega staple in edh you buy them when they're low it's just like you get a cheap silver rings every year this is the stuff you go after it's not going to be something you flip right away it's going to be 6 12 maybe 18 month old but then it's going to get there but specifically the foils chromatic lantern foils from guilds of ravnica are about 10 or 11 dollars depending on where you're buying them there's been some decent sale 10 percent off coupons lately so assume you'll get it in that range even if you find them at 12 um sell target 18 to 20 Slam dunk, no problem. It'll get there. Give it 6-12 months, probably, um, for the rest to drain out. Uh, anybody who didn't have a foil one before has a good shot at getting them now. I was picking up some Russian foils on card market this afternoon at 14 each. That seems nice. Um, wow, that's cheaper than I would have guessed. Uh, again, EDH stuff always underpriced over there. The uh, Yeah, but the Russian stuff? Mm-hmm. Usually not by that much. So, yeah, this, one, this one's just... Wouldn't even call this tech. This is just finance 101 yeah this you know soul ring and chromatic lantern are two extremely regular um returns for vendors like they reprint them uh they drop they buy all of the ones from players who buy the commander precon and then they wait eight months and sell them back for two you know instead of they bought them at 75 cents they sell them in their local store for three or four bucks and rent gets paid. Chromatic Lantern is obviously a little pricier, but that's still still the deal. So if you want rock-solid profits, guaranteed, uh, shy of another reprint in the next six months, which would be tricky. Uh, yeah, hard to argue with that. The, really, really, the, 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 the only problem here, and this is true of everything we're going to talk about this week, basically, is it's like, why are you spending $11 a piece on Chromatic Lantern instead of just buying you know, Japanese boxes or ME3, basically. But such is the uh, perpetual magic finance challenge. Well, I mean, if you're doing Japanese boxes right, you're handling the sales and and marketing side of that equation and not fronting any cash. And ME3, I have a feeling that anybody with a sizable war chest has more war chests than they have opportunity to purchase. So we'll, we'll find out tomorrow. Um, I'm going to kick us off here with a circuitous route. Um, this is the like sky shroud claim type card that was in, uh, oh shoot, was this 
Guilds of Ravnica, Ravnica Allegiance, which one was this? This is in Guilds of Ravnica. It's an uncommon, four mana uncommon, search your library for two basics or gate cards and put them in the play tapped. So um, anyone who's played EDH for any amount of time is familiar with this equation, the four mana sorcery that goes and gets two lands. This one, just as popular as the other ones, has the addition of getting gates, which is pretty cool. Um, so if you want to do that in standard, it has that angle as well, but it's also useful in EDH. You will find that uh, supply is not the deepest on this card, um, lower than you might have expected, I believe. So uh, you can get them for right now four bucks, right? Like that should tell you that there's definitely some demand for this card. Um, and given that it's in 2300 EDH decks in the span of like four months, there's definitely some uh, appeal here. Um, so, oh, you know, you know what it is. There's about just under 50 vendors on TCG Player, but uh, only about half of them are at like four to five dollars, and then it kicks up to like six bucks pretty quickly. So there's probably like 25 to 40 copies at 450 or less, maybe. Um, but you know, this is going to keep getting picked up, and I think you're going to see foils at eight or nine dollars before too long. So you're saying this is a long-term play? You think you're going to hold for like a year on this? I don't even think you have to go that long necessarily. You might, but I find that every time I think something's a long hold, it's faster than I expect it to be. Okay. I, I, I believe. I think this card's going to get there. I think it's going to take longer. I think this is going to be like long to very long, 12 to 18 months to really clean up, unless people go after it. Um, you know, it, if the pro traders decide to tear down the wall, then the wall will come down. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be an easy buy list opportunity right away. Well, you know, if the foils were 70 cents today, I would 100% agree with you. I probably wouldn't talk about it. I'd be like, well, this will gain, but it's going to be so long, I probably won't talk about it. But they're $4 today. Today. Like, this card came out four or five months yeah, ago. Yeah, there's implied, there's implied demand. Yeah, that that that's what tipped me off here was I'm like, uh, if this was a dollar, I wouldn't talk about it. But at $4, people are already buying enough of this card. These kind of cards always like give me a little bit of pause because green has so many options for searching up lands and fixing and whatever. And there's just only so many things like this and Kodama's Reach that can fit into a deck. And every year they print more. So I just feel like the attention span gets diverted across many, many, many different kind like variations on the same theme. Um, mm -hmm. But... Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be super deep, but I can see getting like 8 to 12 copies plan on a 12-month hold and see. Sure. Now, I mean, maybe maybe I have just completely blanked on the fact that there's some standard deck. Uh, I know standard gates have been kind of a thing. I'm assuming they're not that popular. I, I haven't but seen But maybe it. they are. I don't think that's even part of the meta right now. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, maybe that's what's going on. I, I mean, maybe, and then that's really driving the foil prices up more so than one would expect. Um, sure, like, and then that that, that could be a concern. Uh, but if that's not the case, then this is pretty much all EDH demand. So, all right, what do you got next for us? So the next one is Attraxa, but from a different angle. Um, Attraxa counters, um, meaning Atraxa and other decks in EDH that care about counters, and there's like at least four or five other commanders that could also run this card. Um, Chasm Skulker out of M15. Foils currently in the, like, depending where you're getting them, probably about $10, but could be $8, 9 11 something like that. 
Um, I'm looking to exit around 18 buy list. You might be looking for 12 to 14, something like that. It's in 12,000 reported EDH decks on EDH rec. Um, just a generally good creature that makes a bunch of tokens if you manage to get, get it big enough and um, gets bigger when you're drawing lots of cards. All around good thing to have in the counters, culture decks, and short to midterm hold probably. Something like three to six months. There's not very many of these lying around in foil. I feel like I remember you talking about this card when it came out. Yeah, that's probably true. Do I remember that? Yeah, I think I've already bought and buy-listed non-foils. I think I had a pile, like 50 or 60, and probably went up like... 40% on them or something. Um, maybe it was better than that, actually. I think maybe I bought them at a dollar something. Let's buy a list at now. Well, in any case, uh, I think it's pretty solid. 10 bucks for the foils looks real good if you're already paying, looks like $5 for the non-foils. So you got the, the familiar two-for-one. Cards on the older side, 12,000 decks is a fair bit. Uh, we saw a return of proliferate, so there's going to be some more people looking to stick this in. I think this is a nice comfortable you know it's like chromatic lantern it's not huge and splashy and ultra fast but like it's unlikely that it will miss chromatic lantern is the by far the more popular card but this anything over ten thousand on edh rec is not to be discounted yes yeah yeah all right what about your next one uh so i don't this was a little funky but you know, people are real into Nicol Bolas right now, so I kind of went through looking at Nicol Bolas, the Ravager decks. Um, Nicol Bolas, the Ravager, is one of the top commanders of this week. This is the flip one from, what is that, M19, right? Um, and he's not hugely popular at the moment. He's a 550 decks uh, on EDH rack, which is, is not super high um, all-time. The like 30th highest commanders Cranko at 2100. Um, so being a quarter of the 30th most popular puts him way down in the middle of the pack. Uh, but with all this nickel bowl stuff floating around right now, people might be inclined to build some more. And well, I mean, obviously they're inclined to build some more nickel bowl stacks. That's why he showed up on the most popular decks of the week. Uh, and the Ravager is one of only two choices for legendary nickel bolses to head. A commander deck because they're usually planeswalkers the only other one is the real real old one from legends which uh is a worse card than the ravager so people are most likely to play this creature instead um but specifically uh the eldest reborn is the enchantment i'm looking at uh you'll recall this is the uncommon saga from dominaria uh it's an it's a, it is a nickel bolus card does a lot of things nickel bolus does uh each opponent sacrifices a creature or a planeswalker we know that those effects are hugely popular um playcrafter is uh and fleshbag marauder and merciless assassin or something executioner merciless executioner all remarkably popular cards in black. Um, those are three. Eldest Reborn is five. So you're paying two extra mana. You get a each opponent discards a card trigger. Um, and then finally, put a creature or a Planeswalker card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. So you get a reanimate in there as well. So just very efficient. Likely that if you're building a Nicol Bola style deck, you are going to put this card in it. Uh, foils are about seven bucks right now. So definitely some demand there. Um, and of course, it's popular in more than just Nicol Bola stacks. It's just if you decide to go that route, you're going to play it regardless. Like Circuitous Route. 
I wouldn't necessarily be inclined to pick it, but the existing foil price is already so high that it, there's certainly real demand here. And in fact, this is a card that I was thinking about when I set on Circuitous Route. There are only 14 vendors for this card on TCG Player for near mint foils right now. This is a Dominaria Uncommon. It's that not isn't seen like, playing standard. Yeah, it's not like there are, you know... There's, this, there's, you would expect there to be a lot more of these, and they're just not there. And uh, MTG Mint Card has eight, but everyone else has one. Um, so, and and the last couple copies run up to ten and fifteen dollars. At seven bucks, it seems pretty likely that this is going to be a fifteen dollar card uh, before too long. Enchantments are the hardest permanent to kill in Commander. <laughs> Kills itself. So that, well, yeah. But my point is, it's likely to be uninterrupted. So uh, yeah, yeah, I knew, I knew three, what you meant. I just <laughs> three, three rounds of value, and amazing art, like the the um, canvas prints that um, I think it's Noah Bradley. Am I mistaken? Um, no, you it's, are mistaken. It's Jen Raverna. Right. So she did. Raverna? She did canvas prints of that art. Um, yeah, this is nothing like Noah Bradley style. I don't know what I was thinking um yeah i remember almost buying these i think cliff did um and they came in as like four foot tall big four foot tall banners and they're just gorgeous um i am building ravager um this is in the deck (laughs) so this is a very timely pick to my mind i think i think ravager is a stealth um choice to be a popular commander build all summer just because it's such a strong theme it's not that often like when you think about jace jace has been a stand-in for the player for a long time so it's kind of like they leave him almost intentionally vague um as a personality so that you can imprint yourself upon him but bolas is the like archetypal like (laughs) villain and they gave him plenty of backstory at this point and a lot of really great art and some very interesting thematic cards and this is a fun deck to build like i spent about two or three hours fooling around with this the other night and I'm excited to play this deck. It's not <clears throat> a like competitive EDH deck by any means. It's just like, but there's a bunch of different ways to build it. Um, I'm just going with like a grindy, like Grixis um, comes into play abilities theme where you have all of the Bolas cards and then you play a bunch of stuff like Flame Tongue Cavu and Baleful Strix and um, Bone Shredder and all sorts of shit like that. And it's just going to be a fun deck to play with friends over beers. Yeah, that's and that's exactly it. Did you uh, did you put Ashiak in it? Uh, I haven't yet, um, but I will. <laughs> I, I bought so many copies of all those uncommon planeswalkers. They're certainly going to get tested in decks. <laughs> uh, so the Ravager was actually the card I started looking at, uh, but they're like fifty fifty five dollars already for foils on that guy, um, both the pack foils and the promos. Uh, and supply is very low, but they are quite pricey. Um, I opted to skip it for the time being. That doesn't mean that there isn't meat on the bones there. You might be able to get 70 or possibly even 80 for them. Uh, but I just liked the Elder Reborn more at the moment. I think like I'm actually considering, like, I'm not a slave to theme really all that much. So I don't really care if Bolas himself is the commander, as long as there's a bunch of Bolas themed cards all the way through. Um, and Nicol Bolas art all the way through. So I was actually considering just building it as Kess, Dissident Mage, because she's one blue, black, red flying, and you basically get a snapcaster every turn for free that she's in play. Um, and of course, Grixis has a 
ton of good spells you want to do that with. Well, my my concern there, James, is how do you build a Nickel Bolas deck but not make Nickel Bolas a commander? That just seems like if you're going to build the Nickel Bolas deck, lean into the flavor, man. That's what it's there for. Well, if you have like eight versions of Bolas in the deck plus every card has art that references him, I think you're still hitting the note. <laughs> but what do you lose? What do you lose really by just putting Ravager as a commander at that point and instead of cast? nothing? I like Ravager. I mean, I know what you lose, but well, it just depends how you want to build the deck. Like if the deck is heavily instants and sorceries, maybe that's the kind of deck you're building. Um, but you're right. Like I'll probably run Ravager. It's like renting a hotel room with your wife and then just watching TV and going to sleep. <laughs> which which, Why we, did you which, go through which all anybody this who's been with anybody for any amount of time knows that's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> I, I, did you did you catch the by the I, way I, side note on wives did you check that uh notice that brainstorm brewery beat us to the punch and did in fact do their wives cast this week yes yeah i kudos, uh, kudos for them to have we were chatting about it when he was in town kudos to them to being brave enough to put their their uh wives with opinions that have been with them for some time live to the public oh. to express those opinions so I haven't listened to it, but I know I think it was a Patreon goal. So it's been like posted as a possibility for months. Yep. It's not like this. They sprung mm-hmm. this. Um, I guess. It, and it also took I think after they hit the goal, I think he said Corbin said it took like two or three months to arrange. Uh, so it was no mean feat getting this all to happen. I guess it was also quite the bit of a spectacle. Yeah. I, I learned a lot of things while he was in town. Things that I think the average brainstorm brewery listener already knew. But was news to me. But uh, I don't. It sounds like it was pretty amusing. I may have to make a point of pulling it up one of these days if I'm at work doing some data entry or something like that. Uh, yeah, it, it's funny in the way it's, it's, it was funny in the way that you know couples that who have shared connections through at least some of their members get them together in a room, give them some booze, and it'll tend to get amusing. <laughs> Right, right. It, it, it got there. Um, it hit the right note. I think their their fans will be pleased. So kudos to them. Um, oh, probably. I I would imagine that they basically just trashed them the whole time. So, all right. My final pick this week is not quite ready to get out of. The, can't take it out of the oven yet. Karn the Great Creator is one of the rares um, from War of the Spark that I think is going to get there in the long term. And the debate that I'm having is how long it will take to get there. Karn the Great Crater is an interesting card because its likelihood of seeing play in almost every format where it could see play requires a discussion. You print a card like Snapcaster Mage and you'll go, oh, boom, new modern staple. That card's crazy. You play a card like, make a card like Smothering Tithe and it takes a knowledge of the inner, like, workings of the format to recognize earlier than most hey that might not look that exciting but that actually fills a very specific hole that exists and i think that car the great creator is has an odd mix of abilities and needs to be discussed from the angle of each format individually so from the modern angle we're already seeing this card show up in 5-0 lists. In fact, it 5 out in two completely different lists this week already. One is a rebuilt Tron build that runs a full four copies of the card. And another list was running two copies, and I believe it was either Were Prison. I think it was Were Prison. Um, yeah, running two copies. 
in EDH, I think, and this is this is you know a extrapolation on our earlier points. I see this as being like Narset, Narset and Ashiok um, because it shuts down everybody's mana rocks. And if you believe Travis that people are going to shy away from a card like that because that's not the kind of thing that makes Commander fun, then maybe you you don't see the reinforcement um, of my belief in this card. I, on the other hand, think that there's enough people that are dicks that they will run Karn. And I think that that will happen even though um, the EDH committee uh, clarified that his wish ability doesn't do anything in Commander in the official rules. Oh. While, also, oh. while also pointing out that, um, you know, do what you will. Like, th- these are our official rules. This is what we think the format should do. But if you want to house rules it, that you're going to have wish boards or whatever, go ahead. So that definitely creates some friction for its like potential in EDH. Like if you don't, if you think that two of the three things that he does are either unfun or illegal, <laughs> then it doesn't really reinforce his play in EDH. I I think I would still run him. I will definitely test him in Brea, um, because there are other ways. The thing is that he can wish out of exile, and that is legal. So if you have ways to put relevant things in exile, then he can still wish for them. Um, and I think that the other two abilities, the animating artifacts and, um, messing with everybody else's mana rocks is worth running at four mana. So modern play, maybe some EDH play and, you know, doesn't definitely doesn't have a deck in standard right now because Karn Cyan of Urza would fill that role as like the, a card drawing thing. But I did see some like rando stream lists running it, um, so I don't know. Is it this thing? And and in Legacy and Vintage, where it can shut off like Moxes and Lotuses and stuff in a shops deck, might see some play there as well. So every format is kind of a question mark, other than Modern, where it looks like I, I think that's the most likely home. Um, how do you feel about this card? Well, I like Karn. Um, I mean, his... You've got the Stony Silence, one side is Stony Silence, which is going to be real obnoxious in Commander. Uh, you know, kind of runs into the same problem I was talking about earlier. Uh, but his plus one is... Mm, mm, I, I, the thing is, you have to be really spiteful to play Karn if they've already said that the wish ability doesn't work. So here's the deal. They say the wish ability doesn't work, but do what you will, right? Well, you can play whoever you want as your general, too. Nobody's stopping you from playing Planeswalkers as your general, except people don't do it for the most part. So people adhere to that list, uh, to the rules of the format pretty strictly. Uh, so I'm not expecting a lot of people out there to be playing Karn looking to tutor for their their exiled crap now the fact that you can get stuff that was exiled by other effects is definitely relevant and could be more useful than you might anticipate than i might anticipate honestly because your graveyard gets exiled your stuff gets sword and path whatever and then it's gone for good and you're sad but then you play karn you get to get one of them back and that's pretty cool um so he's kind of curious there his modern play i am definitely fascinated to see where that goes uh it's very worth testing at least especially once the new modern horizons and we kind of see what the new modern looks like um i wouldn't be surprised if uh if he's got some extra utility there uh so i see you've got seven dollars down or six bucks is the low can you get him for that price anywhere right now? no but i think that i think this weekend you're going to get a chance in the six to seven range because there's going to be this flood of supply right now he's more like 
8, 9, 10, depending on where you're looking. So part of this like depends on combination of coupon codes or people undercutting each other heading into peak supply. But I'm going to grab, I think, 40 copies if I see them around 6 or close to it. Because I just have a feeling on this one. Like, I just think that it's tough for a modern... Like, if it's only modern, for the most part, that matters. It's tough even for a four of rare and modern to get there. But if it's stretching across multiple archetypes, things get more interesting faster. And it could end up being something like a Coco, where... The monkey? Collected company. I know. So within, like, three years being reliably $20 would be a reasonable return if that was my worst case. I think I think that this card can get there. The, now, one of the things holding this and everything else that we've talked about from this set back is just how much of this set is going to be opened. So if you only have money for, say, Mythic Edition 3, some Japanese war boxes, or um, upcoming Modern Horizons, then forget all this talk about War of the Spark specs because the risk level is much higher. Just on the basis that there's so much of this product being opened. It's possible that War of the Spark will be the best-selling magic set of all time. It's very, very popular. I mean, that's a record that gets beat, like, almost every set release no, at this point. Well, if you're talking, if you're, if what you're saying is this year has been really good, then that might be true. I'm, I'm not actually sure that Guilds of Ravnica and, and Ravnica Allegiance uh, beat previous year numbers. Like, I think Dominaria was probably the best-selling set before War, would be my guess. Now, we don't have access to those numbers, but if I had to guess, I would say, based on how hype unfolded, I would think Dominaria is the closest thing in the last five years. Um, well, you don't think uh, Guilds of Ravnica was more than Dominaria, nope. the fall nope. set? Because I, I think people were bored of going mm. back to Ravnica, and I don't think that standard format was all that interesting. Mm. So the, But I think people are, this standard is looking really pretty good. Um, and people are very excited about the set. So the more of it they open, the harder it is for cards to take off. There is going to be a lot of Karn the Great Creator. And if he's not played in standard, then that certainly holds him back. But um, call it a dark horse pick. <laughs> if you can call something that already 5-0'd modern Tron lists a dark horse. Um, <laughs> I think 6 to 15 in two years is my call here. Sure, I don't. I don't hate that. If you can get him at six, I don't hate that at all. I think he's a, a potent card, and I like, I like all the text on him for sure. It's tricky because like twelve months ago, these kind of specs were bread and butter, but these days we're kind of like, eh, so many yeah. opportunities to flip faster than that that it's hard to prioritize this. But not everybody is active enough to be flipping every two weeks. Um, I, I mean, f- f- frankly. Uh, I would have been annoyed. I would have been angry six years ago that Smothering Tide had moved as fast as it did because I would have been like, God damn it. I was planning on spending months picking these up and it turns out I had two weeks. Like that would have been a problem because the, the opportunities weren't coming as fast and as furious as they are today. So uh, something like Smothering Tide would have been a, uh, awesome. And then they have it like jump to 50, you know, 10 bucks already. You'd be like, well, shit. Uh, but I, I agree with you. Now you're just like, eh, oh, yeah, this is going to be, you know, m- more than double in the span of two years. That would have been fantastic a while ago. Now it's like, uh, well, I can place an order for cards that are a third of the price in another country as they are here and have the cards here in eight days. So... What is that about 12 months? One of the interesting things with this is in Europe, I can't get it any cheaper. 
they they've already priced success in and in and in Japan I think it's at 15 already. So mm. like Paul Fuedo from uh, MTG Deals, one of the most respected um, uh, vendor talents in the industry, usually pipes up and comments on shit I say on Twitter. Um, sometimes to agree, sometimes to sh- set me straight. Uh, and he was when I was talking to him about what card I thought. I had posted something earlier this week about what mythic from War of the Spark is most likely to hit 30, like first week of June. And he said Teferi, which is a rare, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a mythic. Mm-hmm. And he was basing that on Japan has that card priced at like $25 already, not 10 to 15 So, So his point is that vendors are going to scoop them up and ship them overseas. And that's going to, whether or not it's it's uh, it would normally hit a higher price tier, in North America, just the demand overseas might drive it up. Um, and that's interesting because <laughs> to, I, I, Star City Games was playing standard decks with Teferi today with four in the main. And it was doing some work. Like if you believe that the Nexus of Fate Wilderness Reclamation decks are going to be a big part of the format, making them operate at sorcery speed, nice. Is it? I mean, it, it, it means it, it's easier to resolve your wilderness reclamation. And once it's in play, it's much more annoying for them to get. But they don't get it. to do any like end of turn nexus of fate shit and like set up a double turn. Oh, 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 you're saying use against? Yeah, it, it, he was playing. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. But Ross Merriam was on SCG Live today was playing uh, Esper midrange like control. Um, sorry, Esper control uh, and was using like. Uh, enter the God Eternals and four times Teferi and and a bunch of control elements and Teferi did a lot of work. So if Teferi if Teferi gotcha. shows up in like modern blue white control lists and is certainly good in EDH, where again he has like a lot of these planeswalkers have penalties on them, right? Teferi makes them play at sorcery speed. Ashiok they can't search and you take away their graveyards. Narset stops them from drawing cards. Put all of those in a deck at once, and you have a prison deck, which is not that mm-hmm. crazy. Like you say, mm-hmm. they pe- like people don't build their ED each decks to punish, but like Grand Arbiter Augustine the Fourth is relatively popular, and that all that deck does is tax people, taxes them. Well, to death. prison, prison decks are another thing, right? But they're like, no more fun. They're not, not any more fun to play against. Well, they're thematic. So, like putting the one of whatever obnoxious card into my otherwise not prison deck just doesn't feel like it does enough right it's not on brand enough but if the brand of the deck is make everyone miserable and don't let them do things well now it's another story and there's oh sure grand arbiter augustin is is right there and people play it with 60 counter spells and no in condition and uh well i mean they say they play it they don't play it because no one will sit down with them but they have the card sleeved anyways all right, so moving right along, um, let's talk about Pro Tour London, the debut of the London Mulligan rule, where players get to, if they mulligan, they get to um, basically draw the same number of cards and then put uh, cards equal to the number of times they mulliganed on the bottom of their library. Everybody heading into this event was assuming it was going to be a total combo fest, myself included, that we were going to see all sorts of ridiculous combo decks going head to head with no interaction whatsoever and instead we got the most normal looking modern result you could possibly imagine top eight of this event was won by eli loveman with humans very stock looking humans build hardened scales affinity finished second we had two tron builds in third and fourth notably one of them run by alexander hayne uh canada representing in the top eight 
Uh, Arclight Phoenix in the hands of, uh, I think, world champion, right? Javier Dominguez. Uh, and then uh, maybe. And then Brian Braun Duin top eighting a, a pro tour. You know, when he, when he won the Worlds, um, I don't think he necessarily felt like he got he had quite built up the respect level that he wanted in the community pro tour top eight certainly helps there um and then another humans list in seventh and valakut finished in eighth um now the best keep in mind that the pro tours are always a little sketchy in terms of evaluating what decks did best because they draft every morning so and if you do really well in draft and you're doing only okay with your modern deck then it kind of throws results off the best performing deck of the tournament was actually one that didn't make top eight. Um, Dredge yeah. was the only 27-point deck. Um, and an Amulet Titan deck put up uh, 25 points. And then the rest of it was more or less what you'd expect. The only real like flag that goes up for me was the Red Eldrazi deck that had 24 points. And it yeah, that that was funky, but we've seen a couple of those now uh, in modern results. It, it shows up in the, um, the MTGO one, MTGO list lists that you linked to me that we'll talk about, uh, and it showed up in some other GP or Star City event not that long ago. So that that formula has been figured out, and I would not think of it as being a pillar of the format by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not, this is not, it's coming out party. Either. Well, like Eldrazi was on the back burner for a while. And if it's coming to the forefront, it's for two reasons, not the Eldrazi that are in the list that are suddenly good in the meta, but it's more that they run four Chalice of the Void and four Serum Powder. And the powder is how you take advantage of the London Mulligan rule. And Chalice of the Void is how you stop the, the, is it Phoenix decks that want to cantrip off all the time? Yes. Yeah, I think uh, my suspicion is that the Eldr- that Red Eldrazi is the best Chalice of the Void deck. And that's really what you're seeing here. But that's my guess. All right. So, um, I mean, the, the feedback from the pros seemed to be mixed. Like, they said that, yeah. you know, obviously the results are nothing that looks problematic on the surface. But a lot of pros seem to be saying more or less that okay, yeah, this made me feel like we had more, like, on camera looks better because you have more games that are not non-games. Like, that top eight where Louis Scott Vargas uh, finished second at the Pro Tour, um, was it, I think, two events ago, like, before the invitation or whatever the Pro Tour was in the winter, um, where he just, like, had to mulligan down to four or something, and it was just, like, the the final game of the entire tournament was just a total non-entity, um, is what they're trying to avoid. And from an optics perspective, it certainly works better. But a lot of pros were kind of like, even these games where like I get to sculpt my hand, but I'm still down cards, put me more in position, but I still tend to lose those games. So it wasn't clear whether the um, giving percentage points to the combo decks or to the decks that really benefit from sculpting hands was worth was made worthwhile by the gains of getting to look at additional cards. Well, it's funny you say that because I also saw them getting grumpy about the mulligan rule, but it was for an entirely different reason. The conversations that I thought saw were that the mulligan rule was having too much of an impact both on card selection. The, the idea was the mulligan rule of the event shouldn't inform main deck and sideboard choices. And it, excuse me, it is. It's impacting the deck list. And like the mulligan rule shouldn't have that impact it shouldn't 
factor into how we build the list. So that's a consideration. Also, it was leading to much lower variance games, but like in a bad way. Uh, you know, it, it was just not giving you those dynamic games of magic you wanted because you were finding the same cards and the same mixes of cards that you wanted to, um, which overall they said was less interesting and less exciting. Um, and, you know, they banned cards in the format for that issue. So now to have the entire format play to that um, seemed to be, uh, you know, con- contrary to what was desired. So I think that the overwhelming results here were inconclusive. Um, clearly, Combo did not run away with the format. One wonders if that would be the case where the mulligan rule allowed time to fully impact modern as people. Because because if you're if you're looking to really abuse the mulligan rule, it might take you a little bit of time to put together a list to do that. Um, also... Is it really going to lead to the game states they want, that the pros are going to be happy with? Does Wizards care if it means that the finals of their Pro Tour look better? I don't know. Do they find a way to tweak it so that it prevents the screw that LSV got in the Pro Tour, but still manages to keep games a little more higher variance, a little more interesting? I don't know about that either. So really, I think the takeaway is we have no idea what they're going to do, right? It seems like there's a lot of different factors at play here. No one has a really strong angle of attack. I don't know what to think of it. It doesn't seem like they're going to be in a rush to get rid of it, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it undergo some changes. Here's what I think is going to happen. They're going to let Modern Horizons release and settle for a few months, and then we'll we'll get a final adjudication on whether or not this mulligan sticks around for Modern. Their, their preference is clearly to keep it the same across all formats. So... They will do that, I think, until it's clearly problematic. Well, th- that's the other rub is maybe they go, all right, it turns out that this is good in every other format except for modern. And we're just going to let modern suffer for it because we want it to be good in standard and elsewhere. Because um, having different different mulligan rules across formats is also really weird. So I don't know. I feel like they have had decisions of a similar nature in the past and they did things that people didn't really like or expect. So I'm trying not to guess what they'll do. Time will tell. All right. So I'm much more excited about this deck dump from Magic Online Modern 5.0s, which of course is nothing like a pro tour. (laughs) This is not the crucible of talent that a major tournament series represents, but no, they're all terrible. But there are, but I mean, not necessarily, right? Like the, I there know, are a lot of a lot of really good players playing modern yes, on yes, Magic Online that will, ass. you know, whoop the average player's ass on any given day. And yeah, Sandy Dog or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, and there's really like, there's thousands of them. So you know, competition is, is different, but there's still my interpretation of this deck dump is that there is so much fresh spice going on that. Modern is actually in a much healthier place than the variety of the, the of little like fingers that have been pointed at it over the last year. Like the very variety of cards that these people said, ah, ban that, ban that now. And then they just waited it out. They took a breath and didn't respond right away. And things have kind of worked out. Like they're getting away with it. And that, so, I mean, that careful curation of the format seems to be paying off. And one of the ways it's paying off is a, 
as they keep pumping the format full of new and interesting cards through a lot of you know the the relatively strong uh, card design that we've been seeing over the last few years, a lot of cool deck lists. So I mean, we had a sliver list, which is pretty stock. Um, go five zero this this week, but I mean, if slivers ends up being a featured in Horizons or some other set soon, um, that list only gets better. So you've got it like slivers can already five zero in modern right now. What's going to happen if it gets new pieces? Um, there's a there were Tron lists in here, like I said before, that were running four Tron, uh, sorry, Karn Great Creator. Um, so that was certainly notable. There was uh, a list in here that was running four Vivian's Arcbow in a toolbox that went 5-0. Arcbow was heavily discounted by many people, including Daniel Fournay last, last week on cast. Um, and here it is, 5 0 on a list right the next week. <laughs> you know, I, I just have to point out here that ahead of recording last week's episode, I said to Dan... You like you're explaining him the format of the show. I'm like, just so you know, Dan, if you get anything wrong at all that James said was good and you poo pooed, you will not stop caring about it for years. And that is twice this episode you have made a point to say Dan said it was bad last week, but I liked it. Ha ha. Well, but first of all, <laughs> poor for, poor guests. <laughs> first of all, I'm not trumpeting that I was right because I didn't say that was a modern card. I said that was a commander card. It, in, it wasn't even remotely on my consideration list for modern because it just looks like it costs too much mana to operate. Yeah. Um, so no, I'm not. I, I'm not super excited that I got that right because I didn't <laughs> even say that was going to happen. I think it's amazing that. But what the reason that it's worth pointing out, like Todd Stevens said, Daniel Forney said, like Martin Yuzas said, whatever, is because it's important to understand when you're dealing with MTG finance that even the pros often get it wrong. If you walk around thinking like every pro that you've seen top eight evaluates every card perfectly within the first like week of seeing it, you're way, way off base. I would argue that most pros get most things wrong up front, especially if it's not in their area, their typical area of speciality. Certain pros like to play certain kinds of decks. And if they're really familiar with humans, for instance, they'll be in a really good position to evaluate a new human in terms of what... Um, uh, hole in the um, deck's resp- ability to interact with the metagame, it might plug or not plug. Whereas <clears throat> somebody else who's a control player might be better at evaluating a new counter spell. And you need to understand, there's a lot of different people that are you know much better at magic than us that we need to follow to keep on top of things. But you need to kind of filter out which people focus on which things so that you can figure out who's going to give you the best answer about a certain card's analysis. And I mean, last week we we asked Daniel, as we did with Todd Stevens before him, to evaluate a lot of cards really quickly across a lot of formats. And it's inevitable that anybody put in that position, us included, is going to get a lot of things wrong. But I think that one of the things that really gets me excited for MTG Finance is seeing people be wrong about that stuff. Not because of, ha you're wrong, but because of opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. If people are wrong, that means cards are undervalued, which means you can get them cheap before other people realize they're good. Of course. And and this isn't a slam on Dan. Dan did excellent. I, I really am glad to have him and he knows his stuff. Uh, you could not put anyone on the cast, and I do mean anyone who is going to get that stuff right uh f- 
regularly, like across the board, like 85, even if you said like 80% success rate, I don't think most people are going to pull that off uh, during the spoiler season or right after the full list comes out. And even if they hit it for one set, even if they hit it for one set, they're not hitting subsequent sets. They're not going to hit every set, I should say. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's extraordinarily difficult to do. Um, so and and wouldn't imply otherwise. So, so here's another crazy list full of cards that we did not pick out for modern. <laughs> I don't even know what to call this list. This is the closest thing to a brand new list in modern I think I've seen in a while. This is a Bant Planeswalkers build. That runs the Arbor yeah, Elf Utopia Sprawl package alongside Corsair Crufix and Noble Hierarch, <laughs> a Ramanap Excavator. So you've got some mana production rampy stuff going on, color fixing. Then you've got a Disruption package that's composed of four Spellqueller, four Thalia Guardian of Therabin, of Thraben, uh, two Thalia Heretic Cathar, and four Walking Ballista. And then on the Planeswalker side, two Ajani the Greathearted, which I said I bought a bunch of in Europe because it would be a good EDH card down the road. Did not think that of that as a modern card. Two Garrick Wildspeaker, which obviously has interactions with uh, Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl, but I, the only package I've ever seen that in is like janky taking turns builds I've made. Two Jace the Mind Sculptor. If you're going to build Bant Planeswalkers, I guess Jace has to have a role. Um... One Kiora, Master of the Depths. This is the Kiora from Zendikar block, Battle for Zendikar, that untaps up to one target creature and up to one target land on the plus one. Minus two is reveal the top four cards of your library. You may put a creature card or a land card from among them into your hand. And then the minus eight is the thing where you get the three eight eight blue octopus creature tokens. Guaranteed, guaranteed yeah. that hasn't five out of league before. That that is definitely being played because it's uh, another Garrick style effect. It untaps your Arbor your Utopia your Sprawl, Utopia Sprawl yep. land plus the Arbor Elf, so that you can get uh, another four mana. Oh, out of that's it. so she pays for herself actually. Nasty. And then it yeah. doesn't run any Teferi Hero of Dominaria. It's running two Teferi yeah. <laughs> Time Raveler instead. Yeah. This this is a weird this deck. list. I, you, where did I they was... even start? What was the starting point on this list? I flipped. You, I was flipping through this list, while, the results here, while I was eating dinner, and I stopped at this one because I saw that Planeswalker section, and I'm like, "Huh?" <laughs> and I'm like, "All right, I see the Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl package. Okay, I know what that is." So I went looking for the payoff because it's usually either the Eternal Witness Primal Command lock or Genesis Wave or something to that effect, but there isn't any. Like the payoff is Walking Ballista, yep. which is like not what you would expect. Like, I mean, it's a large mana engine, but it's not that large. And then the four Guardian of Thraben, like, that taxes non-creature spells, there are nine Planeswalkers in this deck. <laughs> like, what? But, I mean, I guess you're generating enough mana that you can power through That's, it. Isn't that um, weird, though, that you're, like, you're building this up and you're like, okay, I could go, what X spells am I going to do? Wait, no, Disruption Thalia package. <laughs> Let me take up six slots with Thalias. I, I guess the idea is that your like Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl package, your hierarchs are going to generate a, a large and sort of clunky amount of mana and paying one extra on three or four Planeswalker spells over the course of the game isn't going to be nearly as difficult for you as it is for like all of your arc like Phoenix opponents who now are going to get taxed hard 
on all of their cantrips, right? Or any of these other decks that have a lot of spells they have to play. So it, I, I can see where it makes sense. It's just sort of like it you it catches you the first time through. The spell queller too is really odd because everything else in this deck is at sorcery speeds. And why is spell queller suddenly showing up? Like, okay, so my opponent left, <laughs> like this guy has tapped out every single turn for the first six turns and now he's leaving mana up. Like, uh, so I guess that's a spell queller because why else, what else would he be doing? Very curious choices. Um, I, well, I would love to know. Like, how about, how about happened? that you can cast, like, Teferi's plus one is you can cast sorcery spells as though they had flash and this deck runs zero sorceries. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is absolutely that's correct. That's pretty weird. <laughs> I, so his plus I, one I, is a blank. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, his sideboard also has no sideboards. Or uh, sideboard also has no sorceries. Nope. But no, you know no what's also weird is usually either. when you see these kind of wonky builds, that if they have white, they run four path. If they if they yeah. have black, they run four push or some, or, or some dismembers in the Eldrazi build. Like almost everybody will find two to four slots for some point removal. Nope. Walking Ballista is the only removal in the entire deck. That is true removal. Yep. I really don't get it, but he 5 owed. Uh, it really makes you kind of wonder what those games looked yeah. like, right? Like, like I'm not just wondering what the deck looks like in motion, but like, did just all of your opponents get screwed? Like, what? <laughs> like, scoop? is it just a, a. Yeah, did you just get a magic magic set of opponents and you 5 owed with a deck that should be 1 4? Or is this legitimate? I mean, I, could, I, 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 mean I could see this deck just being called Salt Lord in the old parlance because <laughs> a lot of magic online opponents would probably just scoop out of frustration at the deck being so jank. It is something. I mean, the Utopia Sprawl Arborell package is well known. I played it a good bit. It was um, in like that mono green or green Nykthos builds that were floating around a little while ago. And I know Jerry Thompson's a big fan of and it. And if you believe that you're not meta he... with humans, it doesn't run a lot of point removal. And Phoenix, it yeah. doesn't have a lot of point removal. And um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Tron. Except they have. Tron, right? The You can make yeah. an argument for like smaller creatures surviving longer. Um, I don't know. This this is a weird, weird one, and we're not even close to the end of the weirdness here. So there was, uh, what was the other one that jumped out at me? There was a another so another the, by, by Esper, the, way, the, the most another Esper control list with Kaya or as a serper as a one of in the main. By the way, the most played most played spell in modern is still lightning bolt. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, oh, my little guys can survive. Nope, still lightning bolt. Path to exile at four. Fatal push at eight. Sure, but like if if all you have is four lightning bolts, and I have twelve creatures, you need to point them at. Then I'm advantage. Right, right, of course. Yes, like, yes, like yes, it yes. might be played very consistently because, like I'm saying, almost every deck will find at least four slots for point removal. But it's not like Jund where it's just utterly like you can't walk a creature. Most creature decks, you can't just walk into a Jund battle. Like they're just set up to to oh, wreck cool. you. And one of the things that make that has allowed humans to to set up shop as the tribe of choice for quite a long time now is their disruptive elements where they're using kite sail freebooter to remove cards from hand they're stopping you from casting certain certain things they're coming at you really fast with the mantis rider in the air they're phantasmal imaging up extra copies of whatever element was working best against you at the time um so you know lightning bolts notwithstanding um there was also wait 
there was a Eldrazi list here that ran three Remorseful Cleric. This is a 2-1 flyer from M19. Sacrifice Remorseful Cleric, exile all cards from target player's graveyard. Yeah, this is essentially Death and Taxes. Um, yeah, which is with a light Eldrazi theme. I, I, I've seen Remorseful Cleric here isn't actually that wild to me uh, because it, that's the right in the wheelhouse of the type of cards this deck plays. You've got the four Thalia. Um, it uses Flicker Wisp and Leonin Arbiter. Those are going to be cards people are familiar with hearing as a pair. Uh, and they just decided that now is the time to play Graveyard Hate, which is where the Remorseful Cleric comes down. And, you know, eats those Arclight Phoenixes, stops Dredge Strategies, and whatever other garbage you've got floating around. It's just, I have this deck built for Modern and normally run Nile Spellbomb or Relic of Progenitus, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because violing in something is fine and good, but. I can still be stuck in a position where I need to actually hard cast and then it costs more. So I'm, it's interesting to me that in the sideboard, even those artifacts don't show up. There's just another remorseful cleric. <laughs> Sometimes you want to go to four, apparently. So apparently I need, I, apparently yeah. I need to get up to speed on my own list. <laughs> I, I, I mean, slots like that are definitely meta dependent. Sure. For sure. So there was also a Kiki uh, toolbox combo deck um that is running the full four copies of prime speaker vanifar you don't see this deck all the time but it's definitely worth noting that vanifar is a four of in it because between like she wasn't tasa um beat her to the punch is the best commander out of her set but she's second i believe um so between commander and modern demand and probably casual demand vanifar is going to get there give it enough time so i would definitely be looking for lows on that card Come, sir. Uh, yes, there's no doubt that that is going to be... Vanifar is popular and will continue to be popular. So um, so there was also... And has that modern shot, too. The Planeswalker deck we talked about before wasn't even the only unique Planeswalker list that showed up in this group. There was also a Sultai Planeswalker list that was... Let me just see if I can find the combo here. This list, I mean, there's a huge deck dump, so it takes forever to go through all this. This was, mm-hmm. uh, well, first of all, there was, <laughs> before I get to that one, there was a black-white list, uh, a smallpox list, that was running uh, three mana tithe, two fulminator mage, two Avon mind sensor, two Soren lord of yeah, Innistrad, and one Soren solemn visitor on top of the usual smallpox package. Is that the one that had the death cloud yes. in it? Yeah, that one was also fun looking. And then there was one of the other crazy ones was a goblin deck. So Mono Red Prison, Chalice of the Void, of course, Sp- Simeon Spirit Guide to get to it quicker, Magus, Magus of the Moon, Legion Warboss, Goblin Rabble Master, and Eidolon of the Great Revel. Uh, Revel. Revel. Thank you. Um, and then the really crazy, I'm stumbling over it because I'm still thinking about this, how crazy this card is. Four copies of Torian Mauler. Which is a 2 2 shape, shapeshifter, yeah. 2 in a red. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, you may put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on Torian Mahler. So the decks that want to like cast a whole bunch of cantrips in a turn, like Phoenix, this thing punishes hard. Because you get this out of the gate on like turn 2 or something with Simeon Spirit Guide, and they start casting a bunch of stuff. If they don't kill this thing, it could be like a 6 6 or a 7 7 the turn after. Mm hmm. Torian Mahler is uh, an old fan favorite. 
That is a real, real popular casual card. There's a lot of cool stuff in here, and it's hard. It's hard to know exactly what to do with it because, again, you've got 270 cards in the chamber about to get fired in the modern. Then it's like it's hard to imagine most of these decks aren't going to see one or two cards that are like seriously worth considering. And you only need like if you get one new new archetype that comes out of it and it tweaks a bunch of others, it's going to have a dramatic impact to kind of across the board. So I don't know what to think about all this, but it is clear that there's a lot of cool stuff going on in modern and you can do a lot of cool stuff. And and maybe, maybe the most dangerous of all these lists is the one that we referenced last week with chancellor of the tangle um, mm. and Simeon spirit guide and Allosaurus rider, both Allosaurus rider and chancellor of the tangle were heavily targeted in the last couple days and are, are definitely past their tipping points and, and headed upward because this deck can win on turn one in modern. <laughs> yeah, I, I sold to Allosaurus Riders today, actually, which I found on, on the back of Neoform being a cheaper Eldritch evolution that lets you go off more consistently and quicker. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go through this whole so you, sequence because I'll probably butcher it anyway. But suffice to say, you do a whole bunch of stuff and you you end up winning. <laughs> like, yeah, you make you, you make you make ex, you play a creature with your land. You make uh, some extra mana with uh, Chancellor and Simeon Spirit Guide. You use that to. Um, Neoform your Llanowar Elves or whatever into, or your Allosaurus Rider into Gristlebrand, and then you give him haste with Fury of the Horde and just start taking infinite attack phases. There's no Fury of the Horde here. Uh, isn't there an no, attack? That's, that's the Narset build you're, talking, you're thinking of. This is a whole different animal. <laughs> uh, and this kills on turn one? Yeah. Oh, there's a, oh, there's a Laboratory Maniac yeah. in here. <laughs> so you- so you must go off. Okay, so you <laughs> so you have to Gristlebrand draw go everything. through all these steps. Yep. Then use you nourishing, or draw use, a lot. Use nourishing shul to keep gaining life and drawing cards. Get yourself down to yep, nothing. A, discard discard all of the uh, stuff you need to to get the bonus mana and laboratory maniac for the win. Well, use Simeon Spirit Guide for a mana to play Wild Cantor. Uh, which you can use to then play a monomorphos. You, 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 you play a monomorphos to make the blue in order to cast Laboratory Maniac with your other Simeon Spirit Guides. And then you just finish drawing your deck, I guess. <laughs> this is so one hell of a strategy. Crazy. But apparently, because uh, of the London Mulligan the rule, again, significantly more reliable than it would have been before. Once you know which hands you need yeah. to achieve, you can just sculpt until you get close <laughs> enough to that you think you might be able to pull it, to go off and then go for it. I wonder what the longest turn one kill is. Like it could be like, that one. We know that well, I think we know this might that be the only one, turn right? one kills. Well, uh, no, not in modern, not by a long shot. Um, some of them are like, okay, you have to have four specific cards to kill on turn one, or you have to have seven specific cards to kill on turn one. And there's even like nine card combos where you have to have the right two cards on top of your deck uh, that you hit when you draw during your combo. But this seems like it's like you have to have seven exact cards in your opener plus two or three cards on top of your deck 
plus like two cards in the or three cards in the top 14 that Gristlebrand draws you. <laughs> like it seems like there's a huge setup to this, which I find the idea uh rather amusing. So we'll see if this deck or something like it uh is enough to undermine the London Mulligan rule or maybe require a banning specific to that deck. Um Here's here's the Sultai Planeswalker build that I didn't even get to. Um that uh, Dylan Donegan called me out on not having mentioned when I first posted list uh, list that I cherry picked to Twitter earlier. This thing's crazy. Two Jace the Mind Sculptor, four Liliana the Veil. Okay. One Nisa Vital Force, one Vraska Golgari Queen. Gonna have to look that one up. That's two black green, four loyalty. You may sacrifice another permanent. If you do, you gain one life and draw a card. That's her plus two. Minus three, destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost three or less, so abrupt decay. And then minus nine, you get an emblem with whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, that player loses the game. And so they paired that with Bitter Blossom. Vraska and Bitter Blossom's nice. Plus two, put it to six loyalty, sack the Bitter Blossom token, gain a life draw card. So it basically offsets the Bitter Blossom completely. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder why you're playing it in the first place. Well, but like she's you, you're drawing <laughs> cards, right? That I, I yeah. I, I got it. <laughs> uh, this is this is something else too that I I also stopped and I'm like, ooh, Nissan. All right, Vital Force. Three, like three Snapcaster like Mage, a Walking Ballista, uh, Aid the Fallen. I I did spot this in the spoiler and go, I could see that in modern because it's just raw card advantage. Aid the Fallen, one in a black sorcery. Choose one or both, so you get to return a creature and a Planeswalker from your graveyard to your hand for one in a black. Not bad. And this deck seriously does work. Damnation, three Inquisition of Kozilek, one Life from the Loam, one Maelstrom Pulse, three Traverse the Ulvenwald. People still, yeah. people still finding ways to abuse uh, the Green Demonic Tutor. Um, three Assassin's Trophy, three Fatal Push, one Gifts Ungiven, one Liliana's Triumph, which is each opponent sacks a creature. If you control a Liliana Planeswalker, each opponent also discards a card. I also had questions about this card, and here we go. I mean, I was when I looked at this, I was like, well, be, I mean, how many Lilianas could you run at a deck? Apparently, the answer is you just need four. <laughs> and making them sack a creature will just be good. And then a Pulse of Marasa and four Mishra's Bobble. I would sleeve this up in a heartbeat for Eminem. This looks fun as hell. <clears throat> I saw that Traversa Ulvenvald, and I'm like, oh, so it's a Death Shadow deck. Nope. And then I looked back, I'm like, oh, What? I'm like, there's four creatures in this deck. <laughs> it's playing Traversa Ulenwald, and there's four creatures in this deck. Uh, that's quite the strategy. The Miser's Life from so the you go Loam like, to like get back your Ghost Quarter and your Fetch Lands. This guy really, really is enjoying his life. Yeah, I there's think. only four creatures in the deck, and you're running three tutors for them. Yeah. So you, you go you go Traverse, yeah. Snap, Traverse. <laughs> yeah, that, and I would and imagine get another he, snap he's probably playing it. He's probably playing it for the front half, too. Like, I think the guy genuinely wants to cast it once a game for for the basic land, yeah, to keep hitting your land drops and to get out from, like, underneath Blood Moon type of thing. Because he does have double blue uh, Planeswalkers, double black Planeswalkers, and double green Planeswalkers. Yeah, so I would expect that he's anticipating casting that fairly, at least This once. is a cool list. I, I And... Nothing like anything else. There's there's no Planeswalker Bitter Blossom list in modern. 
No, this is this is wild. This this guy is this guy is having a good time playing magic. And, and you know what's you know what's ultra sexy? There's box toppers or mythic editions of most of these planeswalkers. Uh everyone but, but Nissa, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bitter Blossom's got a box topper. This is a box toppery kind of list. Maelstrom Pulse has a box topper. Life from the Loam does. Damnation has a this is this is a bling bling focused list. Maybe that's why he yeah, made it. Like maybe that was the intention. Like it's like what box toppers do I? It's like this is just going to be the like premium products modern deck. I mean, I'm positive people have made deck building decisions based on that before. Hundred percent. Right. Like no. All right. Question. So just one final, two final lists to go through here real quick. There was an Ilharg Razebor deck, three Emmercool, four Gristlebrand, three Ilharg the Razebor, two Jin Jataxis Core Augur. And four Simeon Spirit Guide. That is the weirdest 16 creature package I've ever seen in modern. Yeah, Jinka Taxis is cool. Um, I've definitely seen him before. So they're definitely just planning on hitting with Ilharg with, you know, with uh, Winston. They faithless looting stuff into the graveyard. Whomever. Then they. they Jinka Taxis is curious. Then they Gorio's Vengeance. Well, Jinja Taxes, like you drop, you get seven cards. The whole problem, with the, uh, the, but, the cool, the cool thing but, here is oh. that this in these decks you tend to run out of gas, right? Sometimes you get a big attack in and they, you put them down under five life, but you can't finish it. it but Jinja Taxes is at the beginning of your his 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 triggers are odd because it's not a come in the play effect. It's the beginning of your end step. You draw seven. So cards. you stack it with uh, the, the vengeance trigger so that. You just stack it so you draw before he dies, and that fills your hand back. Yeah, up. yeah. But it also means that the discard doesn't come into play, like the maximum hand size, um, because your opponent only has to discard at the end of their turn, and he's not in play at that point, really, unless you like Gorio's Vengeance him at the end of their turn, <laughs> so that he's you in can play use it as a discard spell. Step. Yeah, I mean, really, that's probably actually totally fine. If that's you turn gross. one Faithless Looting him, and then turn two Pass, and then at, at the end of their turn, you um, <laughs> Looting him in the play, or you Gorio's Vengeance him in the play, your opponent immediately discards their entire hand, you attack, you untap, attack with Jenga Taxes for five, draw seven more cards, and then pass back to an opponent with no cards in hand. So that actually is a pretty brutal one-two punch. And I wonder, almost wonder if that is good enough that you'll see more of that in modern, um, simply because that is a devious little trick that uh, could really give your deck a lot of legs. I would... A lot of more time to execute its game plan if you were Jenga taxing people on turn I would two. die laughing if somebody did that to me at FNM. <laughs> like you're just, you're like holding you just like whatever uh i hope i got you like arbor right. elf <laughs> they're like land go you're like uh forest arbor elf and then you're like gorio's vengeance on your end step next turn ginger taxes discard your hand <laughs> all right i untap with ginger taxes yeah. uh so that's because ginger taxes should have gone away at the start of the end step but you're already in the end step so now you're waiting for the next one well, yeah, because yeah. the be- you ca- yes, at the beginning of the next end step, cards have priority. So the Gorio's Vengeance would have already triggered, but then you have priority. You can cast a spell. You can put him into play. 
you unt and basically there's no the beginning of the end step already happened on your opponent's turn. Now that assumes, by the way, that the maximum hand size check is during their end phase or whatever, and I'm pretty sure it is. I think hand size is checked very, very late. There's, also, there's a lot of card draw and sculpting here because this they're running two tormenting voice and four faithless looting and four knights whisper. So it's like they don't mm-hmm. they don't want to run out of gas. They're they're trying to make sure they get to do no. two cool things in in to win the game. Yeah, and the first one needs to destabilize their opponent enough yeah. that they have time to do the second one, which I have lost a game before after attacking with an Emrakul, like or through the breached Emrakul. More than once, actually. Several times. Because well, if Emrakul hits too early, you might have only gotten a couple of things. Yeah, you get two permanents. Uh, they're at four life, but then they just continue to reconstruct. And if you don't find any more gas, you can die for sure. Yeah. Feels bad. Everyone at your store laughs at you. This is cool. So the last fi- the final list is the Vivian's Arcbow list that we referenced earlier. An Eldritch Evolution, four Court of Calling, four Vivian's Arcbow, and then a whole huge pile of like toolbox creatures. Knights of Autumn, Kitchen Finks, Eternal Witness, Dustwatch Recruiter. It's got the Devoted Druid, Vizier Remedies Package, four of each. The full four. Um... And so with Arcbow, it's one and a green for a legendary artifact. X tap, discard a card. Look at the top X cards your library. You may put a creature card with converted mana cost X or less from among them onto, straight onto the battlefield. So you can do, they've got two Ravenous Chupacabra and three Restoration Angel. So that lets them get four deep looking for the card. And they ran the four, four copies of each. So they're just looking to Arcbow on two, discard something big, and find the other piece that wasn't already in their hand and just go off. Mm-hmm. It's a nifty deck too. Not what you would expect, right? <laughs> another another odd. I did one. not. I, I'm pretty it, sure that when we talked to Daniel about this, he was like, "Quarter calling, collected company. There's not going to be any room for something like this." Yeah, I mean, really, it's hard for this to be oh. good without the inf- the infinite mana. Because if you have infinite mana, right, like you put that together and you have an arc bow in play, you can just cast it and activate it. Look through, look at your entire deck and find the card that you want. Um, They aren't even looking for infinite mana here, right? This is just Vizier Remedies, Devoted Druid, you're dead. That that is infinite mana. Devoted Druid, Vizier Remedies is infinite mana. Yeah, where's the kill card? Like, Isn't there supposed to be a walking ballista in this list? Well, so Vivian's Arcbow won't work with Walking Ballista because it'll come in as a zero zero and die. So I think you go get Shyalai uh, instead, and then put an infinite number of one one counters on your creatures, and then attack. And your creatures have hexproof, so no- nobody can do anything about it unless they can get rid of Shyalai. Well, chances are once you hit infinite mana, <laughs> the the hexproof probably doesn't matter anymore because it already would have mattered. Um, but yeah, so I think they go get Shyalai go off with her 1-1 counter ability and then just swing for lethal with infinitely sized creatures. Right. Um, and you can also, in the meantime, yeah, well, yeah, you only get one activation of Arcbow because it taps, so you can't, like, pull a couple creatures. So the they've play. got the Death Watch Recruiter in, in case they got to dig with that instead. Yeah, and maybe you're supposed to Arcbow for, you know, you, you Arcbow for Duskwatch Recruiter, put Duskwatch Recruiter in the play, and now you can go get any creatures you want. So now you can go get like, oh, I'm going to get my Shylai and my Knight of Autumn to destroy your ensnaring bridge type of thing. You know what? This this next list is also weird enough that it's worth a final 
look. And it's, there's at least three others we're not even going to have time to talk about. This one is three Eternal Witness, <laughs> four Flicker Wisp, three Grim Flare card that we've seen in Jun list before, but I don't know what you call this thing. Four Knight of the Reliquary, three Scavenging Ooze, four Tide Ho- Hollow Sculler, four Wasteland Str- Strangler coming out from the Black White Death and Taxes, Eldrazi Taxes list. Abrupt Decay, four Collected Company, four Ether Vile, and four Chalice of the Void. There's a, this is like pulling in a bunch of like meta-specific elements into a completely new thing. Yeah, this guy, you know, earlier I said that Eldrazi is the best, probably the best Chalice of the Void deck, and that guy is clearly giving this a run for its money because does he have a one-mana spell? He has Aether Vile. This is only one-mana spell. So you Aether Vile on turn one, ideally, and then on turn two you Chalice, uh, and then you start playing the game. <laughs> yeah, like which, which, so if I was building this list, very meta. as you know, mediocre of a deck builder as I am, I would probably have started with assuming I need either Noble Hierarch or Birds of Paradise to go alongside the Ether Vials if I was ser- trying to play this ridiculously fair deck. Uh, yeah, one would expect, but. Again, Chalice of the Void makes uh, makes for weird deck decisions. Uh, all right, so bottom line. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Come on, I have to go to bad. There, there wasn't two Karn Great Creator lists. There was three. So Karn Great, the Great Creator, 5-0'd in one day on week one in three completely different kinds of lists. This one also is basically Tron in the sense that it has the Tron mana engine and it's a colorless deck, but it's actually like blue Tron running uh, two Karn Sion of Urza, one Karn the Great Creator, one Ugin the Spirit Dragon, a creature toolbox package, Mirror Battlesphere, Platinum Angel, Solemn Simulacrum, Sundering Titan, Treasure Mage, Trinket Mage, Walking Ballista, and Worm Coil Engine. The Treasure Mage goes and gets the Worm Coil, the Trinket Mage goes and gets the Walking Ballista, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then a Chalice way. of the Void, four, maybe four the Expedition Map, the Mind Slaver, three Talisman of Dominance, four Condescend, Cyclonic Rift, two Remand, two Repeal, four Thirst of Knowledge, two Warping Whale. There, back in the day, there was Blue Tron lists that made use of Mind Slaver lock and stuff, right? This is yep, still still gets is, played, not much. This is but... in that spirit, uh, but this list yeah. is looking pretty fresh. There's a lot of flexibility here. Yeah, this is this is basically just another flavor of blue Tron that that splashed a great creator in here. Um, it's a cool looking de- deck for sure, and it's they're they're flexible because you can kind of pick and choose your a lot of your components as you go. Um, they're generally not good, I don't think, uh, but they do some fun stuff. If you really want to spice up your mono blue Tron deck, you run uh, Commandeer. You want to get some people at a modern event. That will turn some heads. <laughs> Most notably, your opponents. Commandeer is the one where you can exile two blue spells. Let me just double check that for you. Uh, nope, that's I wrote Commander, not Commandeer. Uh, yeah, remove two blue cards. So this is in the the Soul Spike Fury of the Horde school. Um, exile two blue cards in your hand rather than pay its cost. It's an instant gain control of a non-creature spell. So, for instance, if your opponent casts like Cruel Ultimatum, you can domineer it and Cruel Ultim- and you take the Cruel Ultimatum, or you take their Planeswalker. You can just take their Teferi spell or whatever. I've seen it do some pretty dumb shit before. So, uh, really spice that list up if you want. 
All right, so Modern. Lots of exciting things going on, and Modern Horizons is on the horizon. It is going to be an interesting year for this format. Uh, I will say that. I, I, this is the closest I've been to sleeping up a Modern deck and showing up at FNM as I have been in quite I, a I while. Can't even, I don't even know where to start. There was like four different decks in that list I've never seen before, and I would be happy to play any of them. <laughs> and, you, and you'll probably never see yeah. again. <laughs> But but like when All I see right. like, the thing is like when I see a list like this like because I'm not a grinder like Daniel trying to beat like win a tournament I just want to have fun so when I see a list like yeah. this I I have I'm dying to know if the deck is a total pile and just got lucky ones or if it's just like unheralded tech that does is you know that there's a master deck builder doing good work and and you know they're not a they don't have you know, the the following to push the deck out there, but it's going to, like, be a thing in six months. Because keep in mind, Hardened Scales, top aided. Humans won. Both of those decks, people were laughing at. And both of those decks, when I first advanced them on cast, you laughed at. <laughs> and that was the common response, because the, the format... No, the... no, I did not laugh at humans. Yeah, I did. did not laugh yeah, at did. humans. Yeah, no. you want me to go back and find the episode where you... Yeah, because I find the I found the idea amusing, but I was like, maybe this is a legitimate deck, but I I can't take it seriously now. But it could sure, be. but but that that disbelief against what seems like jank, I think, is what is the lifeblood of the format. That jostling of ideas is what you need to keep a format healthy, and we're seeing so many ideas um, driven by interesting cards printed into the format. That the fact that we're getting Horizons, which is ostensibly 20, 30, 40, 50 viable new cards for the format, is mind-blowing. What may or may not happen. Yes, I completely agree. Where can our listeners find you, James? Uh, first, uh, let's call out a pro trader, which we've forgotten to do the last couple of weeks. Uh, we need a name. Did we do it last week? A name? No, we definitely did it last week because I put, I put the note in the show notes here specifically so that we would call them out i remember doing that let's last week. see who is hanging out in the mtg price pro trader discord right now we will randomize the selection of the name of an individual and they will get a 25 dollars gift certificate from our lovely sponsor cool stuff inc the winner this week is garrett cm 55 we will be in touch to hook you up shortly uh let's see you guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my uh, occasional articles on mdgprice.com. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. And once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com. You can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Which brings us to the end of episode 166. Uh, it was a great time this week. It'll be a great time next week. Uh, by next week, we'll be either excited or saddened by the number of copies of Mythic Edition 3 we have in our possession. It goes on <laughs> sale tomorrow at 3 p.m., but you're listening to this in the future, so you already know whether you got them or not. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck from the past. 
Yep. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.